Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff, special post-Thanksgiving edition recorded before Thanksgiving. Yes, the day before Thanksgiving, as a matter of fact. Yes, so this is Thanksgiving Eve, or whatever we call it. Yes, and when, when, when the Thanksgiving turkey goes around and drops dead turkeys in everyone's house, so yes. you can cook them the next day. If he drops them in the fireplace, it's actually very convenient. Yes. Yes. No, uh, but we are recording this pre-Thanksgiving because I will be traveling this weekend and just generally busy, and you are hearing this on Monday, so you guys have already experienced Thanksgiving food. We have not yet experienced Thanksgiving food this year. Uh, we cannot tell you how our Thanksgivings went. Do you have any predictions for how your Thanksgiving will go? I think it will be delicious. I think so, too. That's usually a good prediction. Yes, that it is reliable. It has been consistent so far. Every Thanksgiving has been delicious, and, yes. and, and I do not see why that streak would break this year. So for our pre-recorded Thanksgiving episode, where we are also, we're still together like we were last week. I will be back in Iowa by the time this comes out, but we are back in Sean's basement. Uh, and we are going to be talking about today on our, for our main topic, Dragon Quest Eleven. Echoes of an Elusive Age, which came out a couple months ago, back in September, here in the United States, came out about a year ago in Japan, and we both uh, played it in com- to completion, but that took a while. Yes, yes, yes. that was a long time, so, especially because you started like two or three weeks before me, Yeah, so you had it finished, and then I was still trucking along. Yeah, so you finished it a little while ago, like before uh, Red Dead came out, right? Yes, yeah, so I think it was like the week... That video, because no, Red Dead came out on a Tuesday, so it would have been the week before Red Dead came out. Yeah, so it's it's slightly fresher for you, but it's fresh in my heart because I love this game. Yeah. So we're going to do a full spoiler cast on that. We'll let you know before we start any spoilers for Dragon Quest Eleven. We'll get to that later in the show. First, we're going to do one piece of news, a couple pieces of stuff. I've seen some movies. Uh, Sean, you been up to anything in the last 48 hours since we no, last recorded? No, yeah, I, yeah it's, it's been... I'm still playing Red Dead Redemption 2, but the next time we record a podcast, if I'm not done with Red Dead Redemption 2, there's a problem. <laughs> there, there would, there definitely would be a problem. Yes. Uh, I got you a present for Thanksgiving. Yes, you very kindly got me a Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse uh, movie poster that you got at the movie theater. Yeah, I was at the, I've been at the movie theater a lot this week. I've seen three movies since I've been here because we have nice theaters here. So I'm yeah. just like, and a bunch of movies came out. So, and at the movie theater I go to, the Harkins in Arvada, they had movie posters out for this movie, which looks awesome. And they also had them out for Venom. And I thought, of the two, you would like the Spider-Man poster more. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a better poster. I think it would have been a better joke if you had gotten me the Venom. That's poster. true. That's true. Uh, and it has fun activities on the back. So you can you can connect the dots. You can. It looks like a kids menu on the back. It yeah, it's got dot to dot. It's got a little map that takes you to the. I think that looks like that's the Prowler in the middle. Um, there's a spot the differences with Spider-Man. The middle Spider-Man, here's a spoiler, doesn't have the emblem on his chest. So that's a... That would be a difference. Yeah, and then there's some sort of code at the bottom that you have to decipher. So, yes, this this keeps up my tradition of occasionally bringing you Spider-Man gifts on the podcast. Yes, the, the, this is the second of, yes. of the Spider-Man gifts. So we'll see what my next one is. I feel like I have to up the ante now. Yes, okay. uh, this was free. The other one I paid for. So yeah, this, I, this just was sort of thrust upon you. It was thrust upon me. All right. So speaking of movies, Sean, I've been to the movies a lot lately. Uh, today I saw the movie Creed 2, the sequel to 2015's Creed, the continuation of the Rocky franchise that now focuses on Apollo Creed's awesome son, Adonis Creed, which is just a great name. Yeah. Uh, played by the wonderful Michael B. Jordan, who is now, I feel like, a bigger movie star than ever, thanks to Black Panther. Uh, and I fucking loved Creed 2. 
I feel like the reception to it has been a little muted. For one, like I think it, I kind of kept forget, forgetting it was coming out. Like I had no idea that it was out. Yeah, it had very few trailers. I saw no like advertising around the internet for it. Apparently, it's doing fine at the box office. Um, listeners will know more than we do here on yeah. Wednesday, which is uh, opening day. But previews last night made a lot of money. Uh, so, and, and like the critical reception has been good, but a little bit tepid. Like people saying it's good, but maybe it's a little more formulaic. Uh, but I love this, and obviously I loved the first Creed. I think everyone who saw that movie did. It was not Ryan Coogler's first film, but it was the movie that definitely, I think, launched him into directorial stardom and then got him the job on Black Panther. And uh, obviously that was one of the movies that really propelled Michael B. Jordan into the spotlight. And the original Creed is just, it's an amazing, you know, virtuistic movie in just how amazingly well-made it is and what an interesting perspective it has on not just the Rocky universe, but the way it takes this sort of racial lens. Um, And, and, you know, Creed 1 is sort of about, uh, I've seen it said, the legacy of black men in America without fathers um, is one of the things that Adonis Creed is dealing with as someone who, obviously Apollo Creed, in one of the silliest moments in all the Rocky movies, died in the ring fighting Ivan Drago. And now we have Creed 2, not directed by Ryan Coogler. It's now directed by another kind of up-and-coming African-American director named Stephen Capel Jr., I believe is his name. And uh, this one was written by Sylvester Stallone. Stars, obviously, again, Sylvester Stallone and uh, Michael B. Jordan and Tessa Thompson, all the people from the first movie. And it's so good. And I'm a little sad it feels like this one's flying, at least under the critical radar, because, like, when Creed 1 came out, like, there was Oscar attention. Sylvester Stallone got a... Best Supporting Actor nomination. The movie did not get Best Picture or Best Actor, but I think a lot of people wanted it to. It was on top ten lists. And I think Creed 2 is nearly as good. If it's a step less good, maybe that's because it's obviously just a little less surprising. Because right. Creed 1, like, is one of those things where you saw the description on paper. You know, Apollo Creed's son that we didn't know he had goes to box and, and you know, follows his legacy while Rocky trains him. I don't know if that sounds that interesting on paper. That sounds like that could be the plot to, like, a new Rocky video game. Do you know how, like, yes. they made that, like, Godfather game, that Scarface game in, like, the mid-2000s? Yeah. It feels like if you made a, like, a Rocky game in 2018, it's like, oh, it's starring Apollo Creed's kid. And, yeah. Yeah, and then you get trained by Rocky. We have... 15 minutes of Sylvester Sloan in the studio. Yes. Uh, it sounded like it could have been that under Ryan Coogler's hands with Michael B. Jordan, with Sylvester Stallone. It was so much more, and it was amazing, and I think it was surprising and refreshing. Just this this wonderful, you know, recreation and extension of this franchise. So Creed Two has less to surprise. I think the filmmaking is a little less virtuoso in some moments. Like, Creed One has this amazing... Oneer in the middle of a mo- the movie where they do this entire boxing match as a single sh- take, and there's some things like that where, like, I think the, there's a moment in the climax that is just utterly uh, emotionally mind blowing. And I, you know, Creed Two probably does not match those highest highest moments of Creed One, but it is so good and it is so consistently good. It is better than any other Rocky sequel. Uh, unless you consider Creed a Rocky sequel, then I guess it's just under Creed 1. But it is still so good. It tells kind of what I think you would think the obvious story for a second Creed is, which is Ivan Drago 
is still living over in Russia, and he has a son named Victor Drago, and Victor Drago wants to box Adonis Creed, and Creed is obviously drawn to this because Ivan Drago is the dude who killed his father in the ring, right? So doubling down on that, we're going to take the silliest Rocky movie, and we're going to do a really serious modern update of it. And they do it beautifully. Like, that is the obvious story, but it also feels like a story you would want to tell with this character, like really have him grapple with that legacy. And Rocky in this movie, still played by Stallone, like has to grapple with like, you know, I let Apollo Creed die in the ring with this guy. And I just realized we were recording with the wrong microphone. So, Sean, uh, it's okay. It's, it's the holiday. We fixed it. It sounds better now. So sorry for that interruption. Yeah. This wouldn't have happened if we recorded after Thanksgiving. It really it wouldn't have. We would have been focused from all the turkey. Yeah, all the turkey would have gone to our brains and energized us. Yes, somehow. Uh, All right, so sorry, what was I saying? Rocky is dealing with emotion, you know, like, you know, he let Apollo Creed die in the ring fighting Ivan Drago. Does he want to be a party to Adonis Creed fighting Ivan Drago's even bulkier son in the ring and all of these things? So I think it's the obvious story to tell, but I think it's the right story to tell. The movie is a little predictable if you've, but Creed 1 was as well. It's, it's, it's a Rocky It's a Rocky movie. movie. Like, yeah, there's a, there's a very specific plot structure that boxing movies tend to yes. follow, right? And, and this is the thing. That is the biggest knock I've seen against Creed 2, which is it's predictable and formulaic. I would actually argue against the formulaic thing for reasons I'll say in a minute. It is a little predictable. I hate when people use predictable as a cudgel, though. That's weird mm-hmm. to me. Like, predictable can be bad or good, I guess, but I think the problem is whether the story is well told. There are yeah. plenty of very... Like, Hamlet is a really predictable story, Sean, at this point. Well, I mean, even in its time, like, yes. any tragedy is, because it's, yeah. like, has... Especially if you're following, like, uh, you know, that sort of Aristotelian Greek tragic structure, it is, by design, incredibly predictable. Yeah, so... It's how well told it is. Hamlet is well told, and then you have it today. Is it performed well or not? And that's what draws you in. Creed two, the basic bones of it, if you've seen a Rocky movie, you know how the first fight is going to go, and then you know how the second fight is going to go, right? Mm-hmm. But the point is, how is the story told in the middle there? How is How are the performances? How is the cinematography? How is the pace? And this movie is just so beautifully done. It really... It feels like the best Rocky movies in this regard, where it is a character study first and a boxing movie second. What it is really about is Creed trying to move forward with his life. He is, uh, at the beginning of the movie, he wants to propose to his girlfriend, played by Tessa Thompson, who we met in the first movie. Um, So they're going to get married. They wind up finding out she's pregnant. Him dealing with his impending fatherhood is a major theme here, because he is a man who grew up without a father. And, of course, the specter of this happening again, where he could die in the ring and leave his son or daughter without a father is an is an idea here. Rocky is... I mean, the whole... Both of these movies are so much about legacy. It's about the legacy these people are born with, that they carry with them, that Rocky has this very kind of mixed legacy in his own life in that he did all these incredible things as a boxer, but he's lost his wife, he's lost his friends. In the Creed films, he's estranged from his son, but he has this connection to Creed's son, who becomes like a surrogate um, child to him. And I think all the ways it explores legacy in this film is a really beautiful, meaningful extension of what the first Creed film got into. And I think it does it with a really different lens. Um, and extending that discussion of legacy, one of the things this movie does better than the first Creed and better than a lot of the Rocky sequels is I think the opponent is much better drawn. Like Victor Drago is, you know, he's a big, bulky Russian dude. 
But because it's him and Ivan, Dolph Lundgren is in this movie, he plays an active role, and the whole idea is that at the start of the movie, they've basically been outcast from Russia, and they live in Ukraine, they're in this, like, really low-rent housing area, and they're just trying to, like, get this kid bulked up enough that he could challenge Creed, who is at this point the world heavyweight champion, for the title, and try to, like, get back on top, because it turns out after Ivan Drago lost to Rocky in Russia during the era of the Soviet Union, he was, like, outcast from Russian high society. And so he's trying to, like, get back on top through his son, living vicariously through his son. And that is such a more interesting motivation than most Rocky villains have, I feel like. Yeah. Um, and in Creed 1, it's not really a focus of the movie, so I don't think it's a problem. But the opponent in that movie is not important. He is just, uh, you know, a boxer who is good at boxing. And it's the guy Creed is going to fight. And it's not a particularly well-drawn character. Again, not the focus of that movie, so it's not a big bother. But I do think you get more emotional stakes when it feels like, one, Creed has a direct connection to this person. Rocky has a direct connection to this person. But that person also is fighting for something that we understand to be meaningful, rather than just, like, I don't know, Clubber Lang is good at boxing and wants to beat up Rocky real good. And, right? he's, and he's Mr. T. And he's like, Mr. That's, T. that's the actual character that Clubber Lang has, is he's Mr. T. Exactly. He says, I pity the fool, several times in that movie. Exactly. Uh, yes. So I think this movie does all of that so well. I think, again, maybe the filmmaking is not quite as interesting as Kugler's film was, but I think it's, it's really engaging. There is a long take early in the movie that is not for a boxing match, but is for before the boxing match that I thought was really emotionally resonant. There are both of the big training montages in this movie are just fucking incredible. Like some of the best Rocky training montages. They're so well done. They do a lot of underwater photography with Creed doing some underwater training that is just awesome. And it is just, again, it is a very well-paced emotional character piece that builds to like when he gets in the ring at the end of the movie, you are so primed for this fight. And just like in Creed 1, there's a moment when we're reaching the climax of the movie where a character asks something of Creed, and Creed responds in such a way that I, were it socially permissible to do this, I would be standing up in the theater cheering like, you get him, man! And I was even in my chair, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know? Because it's like, you're so into it. And it's what these movies at their best do. The fight choreography is so good in this one. It's, it's just, it's a great movie. It's a great sequel. It might be my favorite franchise film to come out this year. The two Creed movies combined, I think, are just some of the best franchise movies this decade. They are really incredible works. I hope they do a third one and just, I don't know, he fights, they, they find some way to, like, pick up on the weird Hulk Hogan fight from Rocky Three and now take that and make it serious. No, I, I want the robot from Rocky Four to come back and, like, try to destroy the world and yes. he has to fight him. It's just, again, they, they picked, like, because almost all of Creed comes from Rocky IV, which is the silliest Rocky movie. And I love that, because these are such great films. And I just, it's, it's so cool. Sylvester Stallone, man, the dude can fucking act. I cannot nail down Sylvester Stallone, because it's fucking weird. When you put him in a Rocky movie, he's, like, the best actor on the planet. Mm -hmm. First Blood, he's the best actor on the planet. When you put him in anything else, he's a ham. He makes some awful movies like The Expendables. But there's something about this character that brings out something in him that is really remarkable to see. And I think he's just as good in this one as he was in the first Creed. Uh, and it's amazing. It's, it's a really cool series. And this sequel should not fly under anyone's radar. Because, again, I think it's on par with the first one. 
Cool. Have you seen the first one? No, that's one I still need to get around to at some point. You should. It's so good. Now that you, too, love Michael B. Jordan, since you saw Black Panther, he's so good in these movies. He is just one of our most, like, natural movie stars. You just look at the dude, and you're like, that's a movie star. And then you watch him act, and he's like, he's a movie star who can fucking act, is the other thing. Uh, So, yes, it's, it's fantastic. I love these movies. It was really good. Cool. Yeah. I also, this week, so I've seen a bunch of movies this week, because I'm home, I'm in Colorado, we have better movie theaters here than we have in Iowa City, and in thanks, for Thanksgiving week they decided to release 50 billion movies. I'm not even seeing everything I wanted to see. Um, but I also saw, because this is, we, we had one family movie night with my parents, and they did not want to see Creed, they didn't want to see Fantastic Beasts, which now I, you know, that's fair enough, it was horrible. Um, they didn't want to see... Uh, Wreck-It Ralph 2, which I still need to see. They didn't want to see Widows, which I thought I could get them to see Widows. The new Steve McQueen movie with Viola Davis. Mm-hmm. That looks awesome. But no, they didn't want to see that. They wanted to see Green Book, which if you don't know what Green Book is... Which I did not before you came over. It is the Oscar season movie that your parents will be wanting to see. I just... And now you have a picture of it in your head. It is that movie. It is about... It is 1960s South... Um, where um, it's about Don Shirley, who was a famous musician, the Don Shirley Trio. He's an amazing pianist. And it's the true story of Don Shirley went on a tour throughout the like Deep South. This is pre the like Civil Rights Act. It's 1962. And he needed a driver who could also sort of be protection. And so he gets this um, guy from New York. Um, God, I forget the, names, the guy's name. Uh, Nick Vallelongo, I think is his name. And... Uh, he's played by Viggo Mortensen. Don Shirley is played by Mahershala Ali. And they, you know, it starts out and the Viggo Mortensen character is kind of racist. But over the course of the movie, they discover... Oh, you mean the, in the story, the character he's playing he's, is racist? Yeah. Not the portrayal itself no. is maybe racist? No, we'll, we'll get to that, Sean. Okay. We'll get to that. No, the, the character is a little racist at the beginning. Doesn't really trust black people. He learns to really love this guy. That guy really learns to love him. It is... You know what it is, right? Like, yeah. and I said this on Twitter last night. I actually think Green Book is pretty good for what it is, but you have to know what it is going in, which is it is a movie about race aimed squarely, exclusively, completely at white people, probably older white people, because it is about how like these two guys became friends and overcame the racial and class barriers that just you know defined them, and everything is good at the end of the movie, right? Yeah, it racism is, a, is solved. Racism is solved. Good job, it's, guys. It's a fairly naive portrayal, I think, of of the South. It particularly like it is a very white perspective. It is entirely Viggo Mortensen's POV. Like the Don Shirley character is not a POV character whatsoever in the movie. He is important. He has interiority. It's a great performance from Mahershala Ali. Obviously, that guy cannot deliver a bad performance. Um, but it is not his story, which. There's Which is a, weird because it sounds like it's his story. Yes, and I think there would there would be a way to do this movie the complete opposite, and I don't know if that would be better or worse. It would probably be more, I don't know, socioculturally interesting to me. Yeah. But it is, so it is that perspective and know that going in if you are going to be dragged by your parents to see it. But within that framework, you know, and it also, I should say, has not a bone of subtlety about it. This is the kind of movie where... You know, they if there's a cop who is racist, they really want you to know the cop is racist. That kind of thing, right? Right. Um, it is not subtle at all. Within that framework, it's it's decent. It's it's well done. It's well acted. It's an interesting movie. Um, you know, it is a per- perfectly fine way to spend two hours at the movies. The only reason I'm bringing it up here, though, is because the best slash worst thing about the movie is Viggo Mortensen, who is not in any way Italian. 
He is Danish-American. He's about as far from Italian-American as you can get. Yeah. Plays the very, very, very Italian Nick Vallelongo, who was a real person and was so wonderfully Italian that later in life he played a character on The Sopranos. Like... And, and, and other, he, I think he was in a, he was in Goodfellas for a scene, I think. Like, he was that kind of guy who would come in and do a cameo as, like, the Italian mobster guy. Right. And so that is who Viggo Mortensen is playing. And Sean, I showed you the trailer for this movie before we started because I wanted you to know what I meant when I said Viggo Mortensen is the least convincing Italian person ever in the history of film. And it is the most exaggerated portrayal of an Italian person you will ever see. And it is extra weird because Viggo Mortensen is usually, like, the most controlled, constrained, quiet of actors, you know? Like, even as Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. It's a very controlled performance. Or look at his work with David Cronenberg, like Eastern Promises or A History of Violence. He's a guy who does a lot with with very little. In this movie, it's all giant gestures, and it is the most exaggerated Italian accent. You know, like, what you guys talking about? That kind of thing. And... It is fucking hilarious. I was laughing through the whole movie at it. I think it's still a good performance underneath that. It's got a really great energy to it, but it is so exaggerated, Sean. It is, yeah. I only got like a minute through the two-minute trailer because I got to the part where he says, Are you breaking my balls here? And I was like, I'm good. Yes. I'm good. As I was telling Sean, my brother Thomas and I have been all... I only saw this movie last night, but all day we've been... Passing back and forth dumb lines from the movie and from life in Viggo Mortensen's dumb Italian accent. And we kept doing that. You're breaking my balls here. And I, I had forgotten that it was actually in the movie less than 24 hours after I saw it. Just because we've been making fun of it so much. Yeah. it's. Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the Goodfellas pigeons from Animaniacs. <laughs> That's what that voice is. It's a cartoon version of like a cartoon version of Italian Americans because the, the like the mobster thing is already like a kind of cartoon version of it, and then there's like the cartoonish portrayal of that. That's where Viggo Mortensen landed, at least based on the trailer I saw. Like if you if this sounds like something that would be funny to you, I absolutely recommend when this movie comes out on like DVD, like get some friends together and just watch it and laugh at it because it's fucking great. There's a scene in this movie, like just to underline how Italian he is, and I don't, don't want to be unfair. There is a recurring character trait that this character Nick eats a lot. Like he has a big appetite. But there's a scene where in a hotel room, he takes an entire pizza, folds it in half, and starts eating the entire pizza. That's how Italian this guy is. Yeah. Yep. So this is a movie that tells you, you should not judge people by their appearances, but also, Italian people are ridiculous cartoons. Yeah, it's it's an interesting interesting approach to addressing the race issue. Reminds me of, there's a line in Austin Powers in Goldmember. Where Michael Caine has the line, there are two things I can't stand in this in this world. The first is people who judge others by their culture, and the second is the... <laughs> and that's kind of what Green Book is. Yeah. <laughs> Alright. Well, anyway, um, so go see that and enjoy it. Definitely my recommendation of the week is Creed 2, because, God, that's a good fucking movie. Um, Alright. So, and you have not seen any movies, it sounds like. No. Alright. No. Well, then let's go ahead and go on. Uh, I have one piece of news I want us to cover. Because it broke today, but again, it will be about half a week old by the time you hear this, and by the time we record again, it will be two weeks old, so I thought we'd do it now, which is Jason Schreer uh, from Kotaku, as he is wont to do every few weeks, published a large uh, investigative journalism expose on Blizzard, 
the creators of Diablo, and the, as the uh, article's headline says, the past, present, and future of Diablo. The basis for the story is that earlier this month at BlizzCon, as we all know, Blizzard announced Diablo Immortal. I don't think we've actually talked about this on the podcast No, yet. I think we missed that story. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we had much to say about it. Now there's more concrete details. But they announced Diablo Immortal, which is a phone game. Fans at BlizzCon were very upset about it, shall we say. Yeah, it was It was one of those it did not go tizzies overall. on the internet with video game people. It did. Uh, so Jason Schreer has been doing some investigation. First, he broke the story a few weeks ago that Blizzard had actually been planning on announcing Diablo 4 and pulled it fairly last minute, which is why it felt kind of anticlimactic when they ended with Diablo Immortal. Apparently, they were not planning on ending with Diablo Immortal. They were yeah. going to maybe announce Diablo 4. So Jason Schreer looked into this. What is the state of Diablo? So let me go through some of his major findings. It is a very long piece. This is akin to that Red Dead Redemption piece yeah. from a few yeah. weeks back. Since it came out today, I have not had time to read it personally yet so yeah. I'm relying on you Jonathan as my interpreter yes so I will here I'll read a paragraph of the questions he asks and then tell you what his answers were he says what's really going on with Diablo what happened to Diablo 3's long-term plan is Diablo Immortal developed in part outside of Blizzard by the Chinese company NetEase a sign that Blizzard has lowered its standards or abandoned its core audience and finally is there a Diablo 4 in development or has Blizzard given up on PC games in favor of phones so let's take those one by one what are his conclusions so, what's going on with Diablo really is the question of what's going on with Diablo 3. And we all know the history of Diablo 3. Or maybe we don't. It's been so long now. It's easy to forget. Diablo 3, when it launched on the PC in 2012, had significant technical issues. It had significant balance issues. It was not well received. It's kind of weird because now we all know Diablo 3 is a beloved, awesome game that you can yeah. play on every console under the sun. Yeah, it just came out on Switch. Just came out on Switch. And that is because between 2012 and its console launch in 2014, Blizzard, led by uh, a new director who came on... And this is all profiled in Jason Schreer's book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, Yeah. Um, if you want to learn more about that. But this new director, whose name I forget at the moment, um, kind of helped overhaul the game, really focus on making that console version really nice and polished. They did that Reaper of Souls DLC that people really loved. And so once that all came out... Diablo 3 went from being kind of a pariah to being beloved, and more beloved as the years go by. So Diablo 3 is in great shape now, which makes it kind of weird when you think, oh wait, Diablo 3 never had a second expansion. It had right. that Rise of the Necromancer content, but that was not an expansion, it was an extra character class, mm -hmm. and a couple little things in there. And one of the first big drops in this story on Kotaku is that they were planning a second expansion, and it was cancelled actually just before Reaper of Souls dropped, before it was released, huh. because the higher-ups at Blizzard Activision had no confidence in Diablo 3. They thought it was, quote, a giant fuck-up that they were really worried about. They thought they would just have to abandon Diablo 3. They were embarrassed by it. The initial sales for Reaper of Souls were actually not that good. It was more of a long-tail sort of thing. And so they canceled it early on and took the main team and put them onto Diablo 4. So now we get to the Diablo 4 stuff. That main team, around 2014, began development on a Diablo 4 that was a radical shift for the series. It was inspired by Dark Souls and was a huh. third-person game. It was not isometric anymore. It was so different that they were considering not even calling it Diablo 4. But around the time of 2016, um, that director, who I, I should find his name somewhere in the story. As I said, it is a very, very long story. Um, 
But uh, that director wound up leaving around the same time. The, this version of Diablo 4 got canceled. I guess it just was not coming together. It's not clear whether that director left because the game was canceled or it was canceled because he left. They're not sure about that. And around that same time, Diablo 4 was rebooted. The current project is called Fenris. That's the internal studio name. And that is a more traditional Diablo game. But apparently everyone in the company is very excited about it. It's really interesting. Um, it, it has a lot more more influences from earlier Diablo games. Apparently it's a lot darker. They also want to see if they can add some social elements to it. But apparently people in the company are very enthused about it. But they also have only been working on it for two years. They're not sure if it's going to get rebooted again, how it's all going to go. And they do not feel ready to announce it yet because they feel, and this is another major detail, that they were burned throughout the last decade by things like Titan, which was their MMO that failed. Right, yeah, which eventually, like, the character designs and ideas for that turned into Overwatch. Yes, but they that and some of their StarCraft plans that fell through, all of that has led Blizzard to be a lot more cautious about what they do and don't announce. So that's what's going on with Diablo 4. Meanwhile, with Diablo Immortal, this is not something where like Activision like came in and said, you have to make a, a new Diablo game for phones. It's actually because there were a lot of Blizzard employees who had been kind of burned by these decade-long development cycles that Blizzard has had for things like StarCraft II, which just right. put out its last expansion, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and Diablo III had a really long uh, tail. Diablo II did. World of Warcraft is ongoing, obviously. And there was a whole kind of group of employees who wanted to do smaller projects, and they thought they'd start with mobile games. And they thought they'd start with this one, Diablo Immortal, because it seemed like an easy thing to do. Diablo is huge in China. This game, they actually thought they, at first, they might not even release this outside of China, because it's it's so geared towards the Chinese market. But it's going to be a global release. Employees within the studio are actually pretty enthused about it, because there are apparently a lot of Blizzard employees who very much like mobile games. And apparently they are big fans of Pokemon Go within the studio, and they are trying to make a Warcraft-style game based around the Pokemon Go mechanics. I don't know how that will work. There's like a Pokemon-esque pet system that they put okay. into an expansion of World of Warcraft, so that's yeah. probably what that's referring to. Yes. Uh, apparently, in fact, there's a the iconic orc statue in the center of Blizzard's campus is a Pokemon gym in Pokemon Go. Like, that's how much people there play it. So, again, this is... And these two things are not conflicting... The mobile games is a different department of Blizzard. Diablo yeah. 4 is an active development. There are some real concerns about how much Blizzard and Activision are starting to blur. And there's some worries that actually Overwatch was such a smash hit in 2016 that Blizzard's usual model of like going years without releasing new stuff is not what Activision wants anymore because the shareholders saw the billion dollars Overwatch made in fiscal year 2016 and want that every year. So there's some worries about where Blizzard is going to be going in the future. But this is not a doom and gloom piece. No. It's it's a fairly interesting one. Um, it's, it's interesting to me. I, I want to read one paragraph from the end that I think sums it up. It says, These days there's trepidation surrounding Blizzard, both externally and internally. Strange decisions surrounding the Diablo franchise have exacerbated that, and in fact, some who work at Blizzard believe that canceling Diablo 3's second expansion was one of the company's biggest mistakes in recent years. Recalled one Blizzard veteran, I remember a lot of us looking at each other and saying, Man, if we had just done that second expansion instead of losing half the team as a result of the cancellation, and then all of the personnel changes, management changes, than this walk down the road of Hades. That's the Diablo 4 version that was cancelled. If we hadn't done any of that and had just focused on doing a solid third act for Diablo, it'd be out by now. Um, so that is kind of the internal view at the studio, which is that 
you know, again, it's not a doom and gloom scenario, but like some mistakes were made earlier this decade with Diablo 3 that has led to this current situation where things are a little unclear for the studio. But if you want Diablo 4, they are making it. So. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm excited to, to read it myself because it, I had kind of forgotten that, that Diablo 3 chapter was in Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. And so it all of a sudden makes a lot of sense how uh, Shire was able to have such a quick turnaround on this yes. story. You know, because that Red Dead Redemption 2 one was, in, we know, was in the wings for a while. And this one just like, boom, happened really quickly. Yeah, I, This one only had 11 sources, not 45. <laughs> yes, yeah. It, it, but he, he already had his context, yes. right, built, built into the studio. 11 is still a ridiculous yes, number of sources. Yeah, for something like this, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I'm, you know, Diablo 3 is a hell of a game, but it obviously took a long time for it to get there. And it is, it's... Like, on the one hand, it is a bummer to know that there was going to be an expansion for that that got canceled. But on the other hand, like, I don't know if I would turn up for... I, I feel like my time with Diablo 3 is done. Like, I feel like it would take a lot for me to go back to that game at this point, you know? It would take for me uh, a second of free time and $60 to repurchase it on Switch. But I understand right. what you're saying. Yeah, like, I just, like... Because I, I wouldn't be able to go... I don't think I would be able to go back and start playing my Crusader character again. And I don't want to level up a character from nothing. But I also never take the, like... Oh, you, when you get the expansion, you get this item that you pop... That automatically makes your character at the level cap or whatever to start the expansion. I'm also the kind of person that can't do that. So it's like, the, those kinds of expansions are not built well for me... When it's been this long away from the game. Yeah. Well, if they had done it the way they wanted to, it would have been much closer to the release That's of the true. game, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's it's weird. I, I feel like the basic thing I'm getting from this story is that some... I think they misread the temperature around Diablo 3, around the time of Reaper of Souls. Yeah. I think there were these issues with Titan, which wound up becoming this wildly successful Overwatch, but you don't know something's going to be successful until it's out in the world. Meanwhile, the video game landscape is changing. Like, it says in the story they are not at all sure, and they have no plans at this moment whether Diablo 4 is PC only or it will also be on consoles. But I feel like launching Diablo 4 without a console version would just not be tenable at this yeah, point. Yeah, that would be strange, especially because I feel like the console versions are one of the major things that caused that big public turnaround because the yes. whole new audience, like, you know, I was never going to go to the PC on that game, even though I played Diablo 1 and 2. Like, that's just, you know, playing games on the PC is just, like, naturally more cumbersome. And the best thing about Diablo 3 on the console was it was the most just, like, I'm going to slump down on the couch and just murder endless swaths of skeletons and zombies and demons and bullshit while I'm just, like, barely alive as a human being and I'm just, like, doing minimal inputs on the controller. That's the kind of game that is. Right, so I feel like there's trepidation on what exactly Diablo 4 should be, because Diablo 3 is a pretty, like, perfect version of that yeah. game in a lot of ways, and it's so polished after the years they spent making it and then remaking it, so you can tell there's this trepidation within the studio. I think Blizzard is an interesting company in that pretty much everything they do is very successful, but again, the times are changing, what the measures of success are is changing, they are the kind of company that, like... World of Warcraft is the only game in town for that genre. Right, like, yeah. There are other MMOs that do fine, like Final Fantasy XIV, but that is kind of a genre unto itself. Overwatch is... It's it's not technically free to play, so it's sort of an, a thing unto itself, and that it's kind of in that Fortnite, PUBG sort of space, although it's different. Like, yeah. They do such weird, different things, and I do think you can kind of feel that push and pull, especially as Activision is maybe... It does not sound like there's a bunch of corporate like interference, but just that, you know, they're both getting bigger. They are a 
joined company. They are yeah. a merged company, and I think it's it's those things don't always sit as easy together. So I'm very curious what the history, what the future of the company is, and it does feel like Diablo Four is their immediate next big project. But I wonder where that goes. Yeah, it does make like. You know, to, to talk a little bit about the Diablo Immortals and, like, that announcement, since we did kind of just skip that story, it, it is that thing that's just, like, it's so, it's so frustrating to see people react, like, so kind of, like, violently in that way of, like, oh, you announced this mobile game that is obviously not, actually would take any resources away from the team that's actually making Diablo 4 that we all know is working on whatever the next Diablo game is, but people throw this huge fit and it's that thing that's like, it makes me think about, you know, because it's the kind of thing where, you know, a lot of people were saying, all you had to do was do what Nintendo did and just show us a logo and say, we're working on Metroid Prime. And but and it's like, I get that. But then at the same time, if that's all it takes, if that's the wall between everyone is placated and there are like, you know, digital riots in the streets on Twitter and all that shit and people harassing developers, if all it takes is someone just on stage showing you a logo like a logo of the number 4 with flames on it and saying somebody's making Diablo 4 then that's real fucking stupid. It is. I, Elder Scrolls 6 is the even better comparison in yeah. some ways cuz Metroid Prime 4 is at least a this decade game. Well, who Probably. knows? We'll see. Yeah, I mean, it seems like reports are that's like a next fall yeah. game, but in any like Elder Scrolls 6 either way is further off. And Elder oh, yeah. Scrolls 6 was that. It was that we were announcing our new Fallout 76, which was a very different kind of game. Yeah, Not and then specifically they did Fallout 76, and then they did Elder Scrolls Blades, which is a Elder Scrolls mobile game. Right, so they did that placation. But I, I agree, Sean, like, if you really didn't believe Bethesda was building, or developing Elder Scrolls 6 until you saw that logo, I have a bridge to sell you. Like, yeah. again, like, I don't know what kind of what kind of fool you are at that point. It's like... Obviously, they're making that. It's Blizzard. They're making Diablo 4. It might not come out soon. It might not be this decade. It might not be this console generation. Diablo 3 is not that old at this yeah. point. It's 2012 to now. That's six years. Four years since the relaunch with Reaper of Souls. Three years for the current consoles when it came out in 2015. Like, again, like it's not that old. Give them some time. Yeah, Blizzard you know, takes a long time making games anyways. You, you do not have to play Diablo Immortal. It might not be for you. I do get the criticism, or not a criticism, but the, the observation that maybe BlizzCon keynote at the very end of the event was not the best place to announce that, where it does yeah. feel a little trolly to your core audience. I don't think that was anyone at Blizzard's intention. But, like, I saw a video from that event where, like, some fan got up during the Q&A and, yeah. and asked the developers, is this an April Fool's joke? And it was so mean and disrespectful. Fuck like off. These people are working really hard on this game, and you don't have to like it, you don't have to play it, but one of the things uh, this Kotaku report really focuses on is is that team making Diablo Immortal, working with NetEase on it, are there because they want to make it? Like, the di director of that game is a uh, well-regarded person inside Blizzard who did this because he thought it would be a cool project and just mix things up and try something different, and it's got to be free. Try it out. You don't like it? Don't play it. You know? Like, yeah. It's... The, the absolute... Worst case scenario is there's a Diablo game that you do not have to play that is not up to your standards. Yeah, that you don't that you don't have to play and that you don't want to play because you're someone that doesn't like playing fucking phone games. Yeah. Well, then good for you. Like you don't have to fight. Like if, if you don't like playing phone games, then don't play this phone game. Right. If if the announcement was we're making Diablo Immortal and all currently existing copies of Diablo 1, 2, and 3 on consoles and PC will be deactivated. Yes, we're gonna, and, we will, and we're shuttering down, we're, we're, we're 
getting rid of all of our teams that are working on our real games, and all we are doing is making Diablo Immortal. We're shutting down fucking Overwatch. We're, we're, we're throwing the servers for World of Warcraft out of fucking windows. We're just making Diablo Immortal, and that's it, motherfuckers. Peace out. And that's what people act like, and I don't yeah. get it. You know, these people are working hard on your goddamn video games. Be nice about it. Yeah. It's like I get that it was a fan event and it was like a disappointing press conference. But it's like the reaction to a disappointing conference, the press conference is, oh, it's not, you sons of bitches. You know, it's yes. not, it's, you don't, I don't, I've never gotten angry at a disappointing press conference. I've only ever been disappointed. Yes, exactly. So let's go ahead and move on, Sean, to our main topic today. Something that was the exact opposite of disappointing. Yeah. Which was unbelievably, surprisingly brilliant. And that is Dragon Quest Eleven, Echoes of an Elusive Age. Like Diablo, it is an RPG. But that's the only... It's not like it's also... It's, you know, it's a JRPG, not a Western action RPG. I know. I'm not, just kidding. They're, they're I was trying, different genres. Trying really. to smooth the transition out. No. Like Diablo, there are swords. There yeah. are swords. And there are cool names for things that are very different in the English and, and yes. uh, Japanese version. There are versions. cool names for things in the Japanese version and there are inexplicable names in the English. <laughs> so let's do a quick recap of this, Sean. Uh, Dragon Quest Eleven, obviously the 11th Dragon Quest game. We've talked about these games before. They are such an interesting, vital piece of the JRPG landscape. Dragon Quest, the original game in the 80s, basically invented this genre. Yeah. It is the granddaddy of this entire genre. The series is run by basically three people. Compo- uh, composer Koichi Sugiyama, character designer Akira Toriyama, and director... I'm forgetting his name. Hori Yuji. Hori Yuji. I should have remembered. I got two out of three. Yes. Pretty good. Well, one of them was Toriyama, and you were going to miss that one. If I did, you would immediately stop the podcast and be like, Jonathan, we're going to the hospital. You have a problem. Yes. It's like, what's happening? What's happening? You oh, have God. multiple shelves devoted just to Dragon Ball. It's just, I just like take my Japanese copy of the game in the box art and put it in your face. It's like, does this style, do you recognize this? And you're like, I don't know what you're talking I've never seen anything that looked like that before in my life. No. Uh, so those are the three main people. Obviously, lots of other people work on the games, but it is a much more auteur-driven series than you typically, I don't know if there's any others. It may be something like Metal Gear Solid, but there are not 11 Metal Gear Solid games, yeah. obviously. And they don't, they were not made over a 30-year time span, uh, which it's over 30 years now for Dragon Quest. So this is the game that came out last year in Japan, had a English localization uh, in September of this year in America on the PS4 and on the PC. You and I have both played the game to completion, which includes the main game to credits, then the end game to credits again. Yes. And we both really like it. Yes. I would say I love it. I'm I'm curious how this conversation is going to go because I feel like my feelings on the game is still somewhat forming. Really? Okay. Because I feel it's mostly that end bit, the the last chapter, whatever you call the the part that the fucking subtitle is from, that part. Yes. I don't know how I feel about it yet. We will get there. Yes. Uh, So anyway, we've been playing it. And the last thing to recap is that we've been playing it in different ways. Yes. So I bought the English localization when it came out on PS4, and in part I think because I was like, Sean, you have to play this game. You Yeah, 100% it was, well, there was like two things. It was one, I think it was like when I watched the Giant Bomb Quick Look, and it was like, that's the kind of game that that crew is not super into, and they were super into it. I'm like, okay, that says something about the quality of this game. And then you came on the podcast, I think like a day after I saw that video, you're like, Sean, this game is fucking amazing, you need to play it. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I played Dragon Quest 1 and 2 in Japanese and like ha- got halfway through 3. Fuck it, I'll just play Dragon Quest 11 in Japanese now. Yes, so you did not buy the English version. You imported the Japanese copy because you can read Japanese fluently. Yeah. 
And reading is important because there's no voice acting in this case. Yeah. yeah. It's, and it's specifically, specifically the Japanese version, there is no option for voice acting. No. In the English version, they did add voices. I don't know what they sound like. I turned them off immediately. Don't ask me about them. I didn't want to play this game with voices. We talked about that on a previous podcast, our whole philosophy with that. It's fine that they added them. I'm just very glad there was a toggle to turn them off. Yeah. That's all. So anyway, there's no voice acting in this game that we're talking about. But yes, I As far played... as I'm concerned, there's no sprinting in it either. I know. Uh, we'll get it. That's a little less meaningful a change in terms of the localization part of it. Yeah. But yes, we'll get into all of that. So we technically played two somewhat different versions of the game. But of course, the core of the thing is the same. So let us now talk about Dragon Quest XI, Echoes of an Elusive Age. Spoilers for the game from here on out. It's 95 hours, so if you haven't played it yet, you might have to like save this podcast for many months down the road. Yeah. But I would highly recommend it. I want to be clear, at this moment in time, recognizing that there are still a few games to go in 2018, it is my undisputed easy number one game of the year. Interesting, like, not, yeah. not even close to anything else. Um, Smash Brothers could change that, given you all know my love for Smash Bros and my hype for the new game. Or I could replay the Persona dancing games again and just really like be like, oh my god, these were better than I mean, I thought. because you played the Japanese versions of those games, so you didn't know what the, the all the Kamiya events... I did not. There's a knows. richness and depth yeah. to uh, Persona 3 dancing in Dancing Moon Knight. But at this point, I, know that. I love this game immensely. It's one of my favorite games of all time. It is easily my favorite JRPG not called Persona. Yeah, so. I think I would probably agree that this is my favorite JRPG that's not Persona... I gotta have to like sit down longer and really think about that, but that's it's. It, it, I think my rankings for Dragon Quest so far go Dragon Quest Eleven, Dragon Quest One, Dragon Quest Two. Actually, no, Dragon. They have the first half Dragon Quest Three, and then Dragon Quest Two. Dragon Quest Two is honestly not that good. Um, and then you know, like I like this more than any of the Final Fantasy games I've played for sure. So that's must mean it has to be at the top. Um, but like I, I it's definitely not my number one for this year. I, okay. It's it's probably in my top five right now. It's almost yeah. No, it's definitely in my top five right now. But yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I have more more quibbles with it than you did. All right. Well, I mean, do you want to jump into that right now? Do you want to get to just talking about the story and characters? We have we've talked enough about some of the battle system mechanics that I feel yeah. there's a lot we don't necessarily have to rehash. There are just like let me recap some of the things I love about it. Okay. Yeah. And then maybe you can give me a baseline on what you liked, and then maybe we can get into any quibbles. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so many things. Like I have a whole list that we're going to go through at some point, which is just amazing moments that are seared in my memory from Dragon Quest XI. Because I do think, first and foremost, I just think it's a great story. I think I probably actually have some of the same quibbles you do near the end, but overall, like it's just it's it's the journey, man, not the destination. And I'm like, okay, but we'll get to that. Uh, I think it's an amazing story. It's got just one of the best casts of characters. And I think one of the most important things is that the, the world of the game feels so insanely alive. And it doesn't feel alive because they did, like, a Shenmue thing and have a timer and towns with, like, a pattern going on. Or no, the, it's their very traditional JRPG town. Right. Where, like, a person stands in place and goes through their, like, animation routine yes. and they have the same dialogue blue that pops up. Mm-hmm. And they, it's not an amazing world because they did like a Persona-style thing where the days pass by and you have social links and those sorts of things, right? There's none of that. What makes it amazing is really just a mastery of the fundamentals. It's art direction, it's town layout, it's pace, and it is the goddamn writing in this game is so good. And I feel like every town you go to, every person you meet, every character you can talk to, they've done such amazing work on that basic foundational level of writing 
giving personalities to different regions, to different characters. Having those characters, if you leave and come back and something has happened, they will react to it. If you want to go to a town and be like, I wonder how they reacted to this recent major story event, they will react to it. The game does not disappoint you on that. It has mountains upon mountains of writing. It is. It might have the most text I've ever seen in a JRPG. Like, for it's, this length, yeah. I mean, because... Persona 5 is obviously around the same length, but there's very little of Persona 5 that's optional. You pretty much can yeah, do it all. Yeah, and the, you know, the, the people in the world in Persona 5 do end up, like the NPCs on like the streets, end up cycling through different dialogue as the story goes by, but there are far fewer in any yes. Persona game than there is in Dragon Quest XI. Yeah, and this is a big world. I think it's a world that the game... Um, leverages really beautifully in that, and again, we're going to be spoiling things, so the game has a very clear first half, second half divide, where the first half of the game is you're getting your party together, you're on the run run from the evil king, uh, who is at the capital city, and you are trying to collect all the orbs so you can get to the Yggdrasil, the world tree, the tree of life, and see what your mission as the luminary or the... The Yusha. The Yusha. Or the hero. Yeah, the hero, Let's just, yeah. Hero is the good neutral okay. word, because <laughs> I can't deal with this luminary shit. Okay, the hero is is trying to do, and you're trying to get to the Yggdrasil to learn, and so you have a series of episodes, and, and the world is nice and sunny and pretty as you go get the orbs and you collect your party members and all that, and then you go to the Yggdrasil, and shit goes really bad, because the evil wizard named Mordagon, in my version... Um, the fuck, what's his name? Ulnoga. Ulnoga, okay. Yeah. Um, whoever you, however you played it, the evil wizard, because there's always an evil wizard, uh, he comes and fucks shit up, and the Yggdrasil just straight up gets destroyed, and it's crazy, and the world is overrun with monsters, and it is, you have failed more thoroughly than a character has ever failed in a video game, it is fucked, and you have to restart from zero, basically. I mean, you have your level, but you've lost a lot of your equipment and all of your party. And you have to go back through the world. And I think that leveraging of the world is so smart. Because it basically allows... The, it's kind of like Link to the Past or something. Where it allows them to use the world map twice for yeah. very different purposes. But I think that contextual way of like... This entire 40-hour first half that really makes you feel like a citizen of this world. And then a 40-hour second half... That makes you feel like a citizen of this lost world is amazing to me. And I even think the third part does some interesting leveraging with that as well. But the world is so amazing. The art direction is so stellar. It is one of the most beautiful games I've ever seen. It has the most amazing JRPG towns ever. Just every town. I don't know if you did this, Sean, but for me it was like when I got to a new town, it was clear my schedule. I'm going to spend the next hour to 90 minutes going through every goddamn nook and cranny of this town, looking for every book, talking to every person, yep. looking through every chest, and just more than anything, admiring the art. Because these are like little dioramas or incredible pieces of decoupage, these amazing works of miniature art that just have so much personality to them. As in, if there are two people living in that house and there's a table set for breakfast, there are two settings for breakfast. And, it, and it, there's just so much personality in it. And you combine all of that with just... This incredible grasp on the fundamentals, which I would define in this as being the battle system, the writing, the characters, the pace, all of these things. Again, this is a game that is iterating on basically what was in Dragon Quest One and iterating over 30 plus years and just making it more and more and more refined. And this is just one of the most refined, polished things I have ever played. It really is. If you've ever, as a Western player, if you played like Final Fantasy IV or something and thought, what would it be like if someone made a game like this with the power and technology we have today, but didn't like, you know, do what Final Fantasy did and go emo with it? 
well, that's what Dragon Quest XI sort of is. Only it's not the Final Fantasy version of it, it's the Dragon Quest version. And all of that put together, I think, is a good summary of what I love about this game. And again, I can't stress enough that, uh, especially as the story goes along from that second half, it is just, it's like a great anime, and every episode is just a goddamn knockout. I think that's where I probably disagree, is that every episode is a knockout. So for me, my my because I think I, I basically agree with everything that you really love, and, and it is the world is so richly detailed and textured and thought through. The writing is tremendous. There is the writing is tremendous, and there's more of it in this game than like anywhere else, which is very clear when you're reading it. Not your first language is like there's a lot of fucking text in this game, and I'm going to work my way through it. God damn it! It was probably very good practice. Yes, yeah, you get a, you get a you get a lot of it. Um, and yeah, so but and then the characters are really rich, and and I love your party, and I love the combat, which we we talked about um, ages ago on the podcast. But everything we said then is definitely still true, and it's so. You know, the the as you said, the fundamentals are so perfect and so incredibly intricately refined at this point that even though the the combat system seems very basic on the outset because it is built off of like the most basic of foundations of Dragon Quest One, it finds all the depth that that very basic system has all the all has to offer and has mined all of that depth. And you have seen, you know, so, you've like broken through the mantle of this combat system. We're heading towards the fucking core, right? Like we are so deep down on it at this point. So much so, Sean, that I was still discovering new ways to manipulate and play with this combat system on the final boss battle of the end game. Yeah. Like the last thing I did in Dragon Quest XI before taking the disc out and putting it back on my shelf. Like, oh... If I combine this character's ability with, you know, that kind of thing. Where it's just like there is so much to it. it you will get in or get out of it as much as you want to put in. Yeah, there, there's the the opportunities for synergy between the characters in particular is where that depth is. Which is what you're alluding to of like, oh shit, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that if I use this ability with this character, that means that they'll set up an opportunity to use this other ability with this other character. In little combinations like that, there's a, again, there's a depth to it because it is so simple on the surface. And, and that's true of, of, I think, basically everything of Dragon Quest. That it, it's very simple on the surface, but that's what allows it to go deep. Um, and the most rewarding parts of the game are when, I think, the story takes full advantage of that structure. Um, and the structure of the story itself is, as you noted, incredibly episodic. It is very much like... I go to this town, and there's like a little self-contained story in this town, and then I go to the next, and, you know, obviously there is a larger journey that all of those are building to, but it is ultimately about the smaller stories that are told along the way on, on your adventure, and then it is broken into three different distinct sections, because I think the last section is inseparable, like that's, that's like literally what the, the subtitle is talking about. Is the is that final act or whatever? Yeah, it's it's hard to say it's end game content. Like there there is a roll credits, but if you put the game away after the first roll credits, I think you would feel deeply dissatisfied because the story is very clearly unfinished. Yeah, it, like there's just there it's, are multiple different like there's one there's one in particular like huge thing that has not been resolved. That's like this whole storyline that's like. This is not done. It's like if you put away near Automata after your first playthrough. Yeah. I don't think it's not quite as extreme quite as, as that, as that but yeah. it is definitely like, it is similar to that of like, or or like Metal Gear Solid 5. I think Metal Gear Solid 5, you know, ignoring like the bad shit of MGS 5, but that's a better comparison in the sense of if you stopped playing Metal Gear Solid 5 when you kill the pseudo Metal Gear thing in the middle of that game, it's like there's five huge plot threads that have not been addressed in a while that just, if you stop playing the game there, are just stopped. 
And if you keep playing, one of them is a Dresk. Yes, no, there's still, Metal Gear Solid 5 is a special instance where all the plots and threads still are not resolved by the end of the game, but at least they, tr- you know, they start heading in the direction yeah. of resolving. Dragon Quest does resolve the plot threads. Yes, this Dragon Quest Eleven resolves all of its plot threads, and it is in that last um, section that, that you know, the, those final little pieces get put into place, and, and everything, the whole sort of, like, mosaic of the game becomes totally clear. If I have, like, my biggest criticism of the game for me is that and it, it kind of happens, I feel like, more frequently the deeper into the game I got is that some of those individual pieces, those individual episodes, are not as satisfying and not up to, like, the standard. And it's particularly, there's, like, that kind of middle bit for me where there are a couple of them, in particular the mermaid story and the the story right after the tree falls and you're with Greg or fucking whoever he is in your game. Henrik? Sure. I the, don't know. The night guy? Yes. The, your, your, your secret eighth party member that you have. That's not so secret that there's going to be an eighth party member because all the menus have eight spaces. Um, but, you know, it's a big surprise. Um, yes. and, and that whole story with him, I think those two sections for me are so incredibly strong. And, and there are other bits along the way that are more disappointing. And it's particularly some of the party members like Martina or... Um, Whatever the fuck her name is, well, the princess, a jade in yeah, English. Yeah, sure. Oh, the jade. Wow. They... She's green. She's jade. She's just Martina. God damn it. Um, but yeah, like her story, like kind of just ends up going nowhere. Um, I think like Sylvia or whatever, like his, like he at least has his like character arc with his dad, but like his I love role all of Sylvia's stuff. It's like so I love his stuff, but like I think it starts becoming clear that like the story, the the main characters start becoming the the main character. Um, the twins, Greg, and then kind of Roe or your your grandfather, Rab. And, yeah, and and Camus and and uh, Sylvia and Martina don't have like they have some little good bits on the side. Martina doesn't after a certain point. She just feels like she has no good story material left um, past the first like chunk. Um, and and that stuff that all disappointed me more and more the deeper I got. Let's table this for just a second, okay? Because I don't want to confuse our listeners too much, Sean. Okay. We're going to go through the eight party members, and we're going to very quickly say who we mean when we say different names, because most people listening to this will not have played the version you played. The real version, okay. Okay. Yeah. But let's go. Okay. The hero is just the hero. What did you name him? Um, Eleven. Which is, that's that's the tradition. That's how, that's how you do it. I named him Hiroshi, because I was looking at my DVD shelf, and I saw a box set of films by uh, an old Japanese director. By old, I mean he's... Very dead. He was like 1900s. Um, he named Hiroshi Shimizu, so I named him Hiroshi. But anyway, the hero. Yes. Okay, so the, he's, he's the one Japanese dude from the, yeah. the village of the Rock or whatever yeah. it's called. It's uh, Cobblestone. Okay. Ishinomura. Okay. Cobblestone is not a bad translation of that. No, that's decent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, anyway. Okay. Uh, all right. So we have the hero. Okay. Your buddy with blue hair, who is the thief. Yes, that's Camus. Eric in English. Okay, he's so, my boy Albert Camus. Okay, so author of the Stranger. Eric Camus. is Camus, and Camus is Eric. So there we go. All right, you've got the twins who, in English, so the little girl who is actually big, but she's been shrunk down, is named Veronica. She has a red hat. Veronica. That's the one. That's there we go. The one. The one common point. The her, singularity around everything. Yes. Her sister, who wears white and green, she's the healer in my game. Serena. Senya. Senya. What is their combined name in the lore? For you, what do you mean combined name? So the the person who in the oh, the, the, like, the, the sage from yeah, the, the sage previous, uh, that's Seneca. 
It's Serenica in this one to make it sound more <laughs> okay. like Serena and Veronica. So, anyways, that's close enough, though. Okay, okay, yeah. So we have Serena and say what did he say? Uh, Senya. Senya. Okay, so Serena, Senya, Senya, Serena. There we go. All right, we have your grandfather, the old king in my game. So he's the short, fat guy who looks very much like a Dragon Ball character. They all do, but he does particularly. Yeah. Um, my his name in mine was Rab for some reason. Okay, in mine he's Ro. Okay, he was Rab, which is short for Lord Robert. Did he have a different one in... He's just Ro. They never give his full name? The, that is his full name. Oh, okay. Because it's like his... Ro, the previous king of whatever... The, I don't even remember the Okay, because in flashbacks, they're like calling him Lord Robert in my game. No, yeah, he's just Ro. I okay. mean, they probably call him... They call him Ro-sama, but okay. he's just Well, that, that makes sense. That's his fucking okay. name. You couldn't really do that. In, if In English, that would be Mr. Rab, and it wouldn't... Well, it's their fault for picking that name. Like, they just, you know, solving a problem they made for themselves. All right. So, Rab, Ro. Uh, then we have the, uh, the, the cool, um, like, wuxia hero. Yeah, who the, is the in green, the princess. In mine, she was Jade. In yours, she, she was... Martina. Martina and Jade. Okay. I don't know why they changed that one. <laughs> yeah, that, right. that one's weird. That one's weird. All right. And then you have, who are we forgetting? Henrik is the knight, the, yeah. the king of Heliodor. Uh, Delkadar. Delkadar. Okay, Heliodor. We're not going to go to all the that, locations. We're just doing that. That one's particularly weird because Delkadar is clearly like this very ominous sounding yeah. name. Heliodor. I don't know. Not anyway, really. all right. So Henrik, and you said he's Greg. Greg. It's Greg. not Greg. Okay. It's like G R E I G, like Edward Grieg. Yeah. The, okay. So anyway, Grieg is Heinrich. Okay. So those are the main eight. If yeah. any others, well, then, come there, up, then there's Sylvia and oh, I forgot. and Silvando. Okay, why did they have to change that one? I don't know. Silvando, I guess, sounds a little more circusy than Sylvia. I don't know. Sure. Uh, how gay is Sylvia in the Japanese? Oh, it's version? offensive. Okay. Yeah. Do you think they toned it down at all in English from what you saw? I or? have no idea. I okay. didn't see enough of his dialogue. I mean, obviously, all the visuals are there. Yes. He, he yeah. basically he calls people honey. He's like very he, yeah mm-hmm. yeah. He, he, it, it plays like he's a drag queen is actually what I would say. Sort of like mm-hmm. an exaggerated sort of drag performance. That's not who he is. But that's kind of how they're playing. Yeah, it's that in Japanese, it's like that kind of Okama okay. sort of thing. Yeah it's, yeah, it's approaching that for sure. All right. Um, anyway, so those are the main character names. Now we can continue. Yeah. <laughs> Until we come, we have to. I do feel all like the maybe we should. We just should just have us. We should just talk about the differences between the English and Japanese. Like we just oh, have sure. to have a segment. Like, sure. Let's just do it. Quick segment. Yeah. yeah. So that, because we already went over that was our preview of our feelings. Yes. The game. We'll get back we to it. Yeah. It. So okay, so what else? I mean, they did obviously. There's the big localization change. They also did some mechanical changes, like adding sprint. They made some changes to the UI. The English version also has improved visuals, frame rate, things like that. It just runs a little smoother, uh, particularly on the PS4 Pro. I think it has. I don't know if it has full 4K support or if it does some checkerboarding. I don't have a 4K TV, so I wouldn't know. But it looks very, very nice. I assume it still looks very nice on the original yeah, version. Yeah, it looks yeah. good for sure. Yeah. So those are some changes. Um, did you just want to talk about localization changes? Yeah, I, I just like because it's interesting to me because it because it's not typical in this is like in 2018 when you're localizing a game to make the extensive changes they did to proper nouns because yes. like it should be emphasized like basically every single proper noun is different with the exception of Veronica. Veronica is the one, as far as I know, is the only one that is constant. Right, so there are, by proper noun, we don't just mean characters, we mean places, towns, items, spells. It's a weird thing, because Dragon Quest is a long-running series that has been localized in the United States since the beginning. There were some years, like I think after 4, 
Maybe it was after 3, but in the middle, like I think it was 4, 5, 6, never came out here until the DS versions later on. Um, so they did not come out on the on the NES and the Fami or the Famicom and the Super Famicom. Well, no, they would have come out on those. They wouldn't have come out on the NES and Super NES. Uh, but then seven, they started up again on the PlayStation, and then we got seven, eight, nine. We never got ten, which was the MMO yeah. one. Um, so, but all I mean by that is there is a long history of these localizations, and obviously when Dragon Quest One came out, it was much more common to do these kinds of things. And so that game was changed to Dragon Warrior. The whole name of the series was changed, and they made alterations to all the spell names. They changed a lot of the characters and towns. This is where actually, because I should say, they've actually gone back and forth on this in some re-releases. Like I know the Game Boy Color versions of Dragon Warrior One and Two did a much more faithful translation, and they use names like Loto and things like that, yeah. which is the original name of the hero. The original Dragon Warrior 1 called him Erdrick, and so the name of the world was Erdrea and all of these things. And Dragon Quest Eleven follows the Dragon Warrior 1 naming scheme, I think under the assumption that because Dragon Quest Eleven has so many callbacks to other Dragon yeah. Quest games, it is in some ways a very direct sequel to the early games, they wanted it to feel like what people played early on in America in the series. So clearly that's a choice they made. Um, it should be noted that while the proper nouns were changed, from what I've seen, no story beats are changed. Like it's, no, no, it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes the localization style maybe differs a bit in that I know the, the Dragon Quest localization team loves puns. I think it's very playful and fun and fits with the general tone of the game. It's not like Final Fantasy XV where you're throwing in puns where they really don't belong. And right. they're shitty. They're very lighthearted and fun. But they tend to like that. They do a lot of um, dialects and uh, accent work. So, like, Rab is very Scottish in the English localization. I don't know why. Rab is very clearly a Japanese man <laughs> in, yeah. in Dragon Quest XI. Um and Jade, or I guess Jade would not be his relative, but the hero is his relative, and he's not Scottish at all, so I guess he doesn't talk. He could be. He could have a very thick Scottish brogue, but we <laughs> just don't know because he's silent. Um, but anyway, so they, they do things like that. They do a lot of dialect work. That is really to try to differentiate the different areas of the world. And you talked about this on a previous episode, that the Japanese language, the way it works is it's just malleable enough in how you conjugate and what kind of word choice you use that, like, they can do a lot of that without going into these kind of broad world dialects. In English, you have to come up with something. And that's one of the ways they've done it. Um, so those are the kinds of choices they made. It should be said that this was not done completely on a bubble. Like, Yuji Horii was very involved in the localization of Dragon Quest XI. He was very involved in a lot of the mechanical changes that they oversaw. A lot of this ran through him. He approved of these changes. And I do think this does happen sometimes in Japan where you think like, oh, they would just want us to be faithful to it. But sometimes they're like, eh, we want to expand the audience and this is how we think we'll do it. Whether they're right or wrong, I don't know. I, I yeah. think clearly you do not have to change everything to be successful, as Persona 5 taught us last year. Very, very faithful dub and very faithful adaptation. Um, so I think that's a good overview. Is there anything else you wanted to say about it? Yeah, it's just it's something that was really interesting when I was playing it, of, of either in talking with you or... Because I think I talked about this on the podcast at some point several weeks ago, of stumbling upon like the English Wikipedia entry for Dragon Quest Eleven and just catching some of those things of like the luminary one was the one that jumped out to me the most. But it's like it's how every single place name in English has like you said, it has a sort of well not every single one, but a lot of them have a very punny sort of quality to them that that's very different where in the let me Japanese give you a version. Okay, yeah, go ahead, give, give me, me an example. So there's a city in the desert where the horse racing happens. Yeah. Do you remember what that's called in uh, Japanese? Somebody. It's called Galopolis, as in Gallop. 
Opelous. Okay, yes. Yeah, or there's like, or some of the, the, the most interesting changes were around um, the Homura, the, the Japanese style village that's by the volcano. Oh, right, yeah. I love that. I forget what it's called now. Okay, yeah, because in that, the thing that was most interesting, because that's the part where, um, in the Giant Bomb Quick Look, that's where they were, and in that village... Hoto, it, it's H-O-T-T-O. Hato, okay. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Hato. That's, I mean, at least, Komoda, it's, at least it's, Komoda is, like, fire-related. That's true, and that's funny, it is, it would be Hato, because it's so Japanese, I, as someone who knows a little Japanese, read it as Hoto, I don't know if that's Which how would be the Japanese way of pronouncing the English word hot, anyways, yes. but, yeah. um, but in, in English... If I remember correctly, don't all the people in that village speak in haiku? They do speak in haiku, and apparently that is a tradition. There have been cities like that in all the Dragon Quest localizations going back a long time. Okay, that's interesting, because yeah, in the Japanese version, they all just... They speak normal? They just speak Japanese. Yeah, Yeah. and and this is what I mean. the, The English localization team clearly took pains to, like... It's there's supposed to be regional variants, like and again you can speak to how do I don't know if that's even a thing that the Japanese version attempts. Not but, like linguistically, no. Okay, because they really did try it in English, and I think it's effective. I like it. I like that you go around and different places feel really different. Uh, sometimes it feels a little broad, but there, I don't know. There is such a like storybook quality to Dragon Quest that I think that style of writing, even if it's not always there in the Japanese, is it's still amenable to that. Um, so I think it works for me. There's somewhere it gets like, uh, what's the? It's, there's the city on the coast that you go to that Sylvia is from. Um, oh, that's Sultina in English. Yeah, I don't remember what it is. Um, but um, they that's supposed to be like Spain, and they all talk like they're Spanish. Okay, and it's a yeah. little that one gets a little thick because it gets to the point where it's hard to read. Not not that Spanish is. I just mean like it's so kind of jumbled with the English. It's like right. yeah. Yeah, because it's because in the Japanese version, the linguistically people are all more or less speaking normative Japanese, and then like there and people will differ from that not because of where they are, but because of like where they are geographically. It'll be more to do with their age, their gender, or their like social status. So obviously, someone who's really rich and like, like there's like one woman that ends up. Um, she kind of she's an NPC that kind of goes around into a couple of different areas as, over the course of the game and visits different towns that is clearly like incredibly rich noble woman and she speaks in Japanese and it's like ridiculously over the top super heightened like like she said she's actually a lot she speaks the same way that the um, lady in Dragon Ball Z who's the mom of the two like mullet kids that fight in the kids tournament yes it's the, she's she's basically just that character and she speaks the same way. Um, and so it's more stuff like that, and the regional differences are communicated, as you can see in the English version, also through, like, architecture and clothing and, like, visual markers, and the vocabulary stuff is all used for, like, not regional differences, but basically social differences. Okay. And that's the thing. That is something that you can do a little easier than Japanese. Yeah, there are There's just more built-in. Culturally, that's the way people talk at different levels. In English, we don't necessarily... We have, obviously, differences in class and race and gender a little, but it's not as pronounced. Yeah. So I can see why that becomes how they change it in English. It's trying to give it character in whatever way you can with the language you're using. And I think it should also be noted, while I did not play the game with voice acting, there is no voice acting in the Japanese. Yeah. In English, this game was written to be in part spoken. So, right. like, some of the dialogue... Like, yeah, there the accent stuff makes a lot more sense. Yes, sure. like, part of why you give Rab a Scottish accent is you want to have the actor do a fun Scottish accent. I don't necessarily need the fun Scottish accent. I've heard it. He sounds like Scrooge McDuck's more Scottish uncle. But it's still there. It's fun. It's fine. 
Um, and it does make sense that, again, if you're making a spoken written, or a spoken version of this, your written words are going to be a little more dialectic because you're thinking about speech. Obviously, not all the speech in the game is spoken. That would be impossible <laughs> with a game yeah. of this size. But that, That's like a 20-year project or something to, to <laughs> voice act the entirety of Dragon Quest XI. Yeah, so anything else in regards to the localization and the differences we should talk about? Um, I think for me, probably the most significant difference is the luminary thing. That's that's the thing that took me... Because like the other stuff is, is stuff that kind of is against my taste and localization of that like we're trying to like punch things up and make them a little bit punny and like that kind of stuff I'm not a huge fan of generally speaking like I think there are advantages to that approach it just doesn't work for me um but the one choice that I think is very strange is changing Yusha to Luminary because in and we definitely talked about this in in, in a previous podcast but to recap it because I think it is very relevant the plot to Dragon Quest 11 is playing off of a very standard Japanese, like Japanese Western fantasy storytelling trope. That if you have played any other Dragon Quest JRPG, if you played any early Final Fantasy, like one, two, five, basically JRPG, if you've like seen any sort of like vaguely Western fantasy esque Japanese anime, all of them are like kind of playing off of this stuff. And the core, like generic plot, is you have the Yusha, which is the hero. Who is, you know, probably like destined is like a chosen one kind of figure who um, must go on some grand adventure across the whole world, gathering party members together um, to fight the Ma'o, which is the demon king. If you are, you know, into Dragon Ball, that's like Dai Ma'o Piccolo, or that's like, you know, the same kind of thing. It's because, you know, it's actually, it is playing directly off of that tradition. Like, that's the, that's the core plot structure that Dragon Quest XI is basically playing with. And so, yeah, your main character is known as the Yusha. That's what the mark on your hand, like, indicates you as being, like, everybody refers to, everybody that is not, like, doesn't know you very well refers to you that way. Um, and then you are going to defeat Ulanoga, who is the, the, the Demon King, the Malo. Or you think he is, at the very least. Who knows? There's a whole second Demon yes, King. Yes, there's, there's Nizelfa, or whatever the fuck it's called. It's a very confusing word um, to get to you. But, yeah, that's sort of, like, the core... Structure and part of what like those terms are is that they are very generic, and that's what's interesting to me about using the word luminary is that it's the exact opposite. It's a very specialized, specific, unique piece of like proper noun usage that is only used in this game. Doesn't like harken to anything else. Whereas like the 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 standard way to translate it would just be like hero with a capital H. It would be I I I see the logic. Hero sounds because we don't have the same. We obviously have similar storytelling traditions, but we don't necessarily just say hero capital H for all of those. Like right. if I just say the word hero to someone, I don't know if their first association is this kind of mythical storytelling. If I were to say the word yusha in Japanese, that might be an immediate association, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. It, it, it would come to mind for sure. Like yeah. it has a more generic usage, right? Um, but I don't like I don't know in Japan do they say like that firefighter he's a yusha for saving that cat no yeah okay. definitely not that yeah that, that's I guess that's what I mean so I understand why you would use luminary because you want it to sound like it's a title he is the luminary and and the idea is that and it, it makes some sense in the story because you are trying to like the Mao Mordagon in in English is literally trying to shroud the world in darkness you are trying to keep the world in the light and so. Using the term luminary of all the other English words you could use is probably a pretty yeah. good one if you're not going to use hero. Um, I mean, you know, I'll be clear. Gun to my head, 
Would I prefer a super faithful translation or a really punched up translation? I would go super faithful. But we don't have that. So, right. and, and no one else is going to translate this 100 hour game. So, no. yeah. you know, I'm fine with it. I think the, you know, they haven't changed the underlying stuff. So like right. all of those things you're saying, I think they're still in there. And especially if you, if you know the plots of other Dragon Quest games, that all shines through just fine. I do see what you mean there, um, with, with Yusho versus Hero. Probably on balance, it would have been better if they just called him the hero. But I do also see why, for an English speaking audience, they might think there's a need to do it. Again, not, not that I think it's the right choice necessarily. I see the logic. Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, there's definitely a logic there. Yeah. I just disagree so. with the choice. No, it's, I, I probably do too. But, um, I also played the game for a very long time. Right, yeah. And I, and I didn't, I probably should have realized it, but I was so into it, I didn't think about it. And I, I just, I see that mark on his hand and I think luminary. Whereas, obviously, you look at it and it's the mark of the Yusha. Yeah, if, if someone says the word luminary, I'm like, what the fuck are you even saying? What? Yes. All right, so let's talk about the story. Because this is, as you said, it's very episodic. I think a good way to describe it, if you're, like, intimidated by the length of this game, is that it's like several seasons of anime, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas, like, a Persona 5 or something, like, Persona 5 is similar in length. It's about 100 hours. Persona 5 is almost like a good novel, like a long, picaresque novel. Yeah, it's because it basically has, you know, how many, like, 10 or so, like, chapters, and they're, like, big, long sections each. Yeah, like, Persona 5 is episodic, I like, to be clear, like, there are little arcs that begin and end, but it is all flowing towards a very clear, like, it's going to a place. Yeah, and, like, the episodes are so huge that it's, like, hard to, like, specifically call it episodic. It's, it's why the Persona 5 anime has felt odd to a lot of people, because there's sometimes taking those very large ones and making two episodes out of them, and it exactly. feels weird. Yeah, like, so, each one could be about, like, ten episodes of an anime. Absolutely. Again, it's a hundred hours long, and uh, some of that is dungeon crawling, but not all hundred hours. So, yeah, yeah. yes. So, Dragon Quest Eleven is a little different, in that it, it's... I, I, I like your description there of this, what basic plot it's playing with, because I think it's one of the most interesting things textually about this game, is how in conversation it is, not just with other games in its own series, but with this entire genre of fiction, right? In that it is, it's also like a, a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, you know? It is, you start, and you have to go defeat the Ma'o, Mordagon, whatever his name is in Japanese. Ulnoga. Ulnoga. So, you know, that is your goal. And 100 hours later, or so, with some twists and turns along the way, you're going to get there. But in the middle, a lot of things are going to happen. And I think the game does a lot in the middle to interrogate that plot structure, push on it, pull on it, twist it, turn it, do a lot of different things with it, even as... The, like, the start, the end, and some events around the middle are going to be kind of the signposts you recognize. But within that, what they do is it is very episodic, like several seasons of anime, where there is there are overarching things to the different stories going on, but there are sometimes just episodes. Like, you mentioned the mermaid one. That is definitely one of the high points of the game. It's on my list. That is one where you have... Uh, you meet... This, uh, you go to this, like, seaside village, and you meet this, and they're all afraid of mermaids, you meet this mermaid underwater, you wind up also going to the underwater kingdom, it involves multiple different parts of the world, but it is the story of a mermaid, and her lost human love, and the mermaid lives longer, so she has been waiting for this man, he died in the intervening years, you have to break the news to him, it also involves that man's grandson, I believe, who has been like, kind of outcast because of his grandfather's role with this mermaid who was demonized. And it's that sort of thing where, is this individual plot episode of particular import to the larger narrative? No, you get an orb out of it. But other than that, none of this has anything to do with Mordegon or the general threat to the world. 
but it, so it is this kind of closed off short story sort of episodic structure. Um, it's almost like, you know, also like Pokemon or something, where you get to a new town every episode, yeah. and Ash and friends encounter a new problem, and it's not as repetitive, it doesn't have Team Rocket there every single time trying to kidnap Pikachu, uh, but it is that sort of thing, where we're going to go to a place every time, and new things are going to happen, and there will be episodes and new characters introduced, and sometimes you'll get a party member, but sometimes it's just about meeting the characters there and working with them. So, and I think this is where we come apparently to some disagreement. I generally found I really loved every episode in this game. I didn't love them all equally. Some shined brighter than others, but I was generally very engaged. I think some of it is just, and this is what I mean by, or, or why I think it's important to use the term auteur here a little bit, is that there is such an authorial stamp to everything in this game, more than I think you typically feel with a video game certainly of this size and scope, that if you just like the style of a writer or a developer or something, sometimes you're just going to be along the way for it, kind right. of whatever story is being told. Like, I love Douglas Adams. I can fully appreciate that there are Hitchhiker's Guide books that are worse than other Hitchhiker's Guide books, but if you give me Mostly Harmless, the worst of those, and you give me some fucking textbook to read, I'm going to read Mostly Harmless, you know, because I love I th- reading... I think, I think almost anybody would okay, do, let me, do those two choices. Let's do it a different way. And you give me, I don't know... Moby Dick. I'm sure it's really good, Sean. It's, been better, it. it's better than that, but yeah. Yeah. I would probably still, because I just, I'm so into that writing style. But you wouldn't get to, you know, experience Herman Melville's incredibly compelling argument that whales are actually fish and not mammals, even though they're definitely mammals, but he says yes. they're fish. Okay. I will, well, I would love to, this is an imperfect comparison, okay. but you know what I mean, right? So some of it is just, I love the, the, the roughly the prose of this game, both the written style, but also just the art, the pace, the music, those sorts of yeah. things. Um, so, like I said, I have a whole list of episodes we could go through that I re- that really left an impact on me. Were there ones that like you really stumbled with? Um, it, it was mostly because I don't. The, the only one that I really don't like is the um, the the one with Martina or Jade um, in the second go around. Where's there? There's, there's the casino in the town. Yes, and then she's been turned into a mama or a monster or whatever. Um, yeah, that is probably my least favorite too. It's just like. Weird. It's inexplicable. It's the one that is like in pot. Like you cannot get away from some of the weird gender stuff in this game. That like is not a huge problem for me specifically because you know Dragon Ball, like Japan. Like I'm, I, I get it. Like I should we pause and have this conversation for people? Okay. Yes. Yeah. We should. Yeah, because we it needs to be talked about in regards to Martina and and Sylvia because there's like there some big cultural issues I think with those two. Yeah. Like. There's some pervy stuff in Dragon yeah. Quest. You've got that puff puff. You've got that puffu puffu all yep. over the world to go do. Uh, although in I, I did, I don't know if this is this is probably true in the Japanese too. In most versions of it in this game, it's not an actual puff puff that happens. It's like yeah, there's like there's a couple of them that are straight up puff puff. Um, but yeah, there's there's the classic because this is they, what they they did to this in Dragon Quest three also, where you think you're going to get puff puff and it's a big muscle dude and it's yes. like oh. Yeah, big muscle. We should say Pafu Pafu is. It's like if you've seen in Dragon Ball when Master Roshi really wants to have Bulma's boobs, Bulma's boobs in his face. That's a Pafu Pafu. Yes, yes. That's it's it's meant to be onomatopoeic. That's what Puff Puff. Yeah, Yeah. it's not a drug thing. It's a boob thing. Yes, because I've heard it so many times in Dragon Ball. Even reading it in English, I only ever hear it as Pafu Pafu. Right. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So that's Puff Puff. That is probably. That is an obvious pervy thing going on here. There are other things, as you said, with Jade slash Martina, with Sylvia slash Silvando. And it's, I could totally 100% understand if you were uh, an American, 
English speaker who looked at that and said, this game really is off-putting to me. I don't want to play it. I get it. It's a, it's a differing cultural standard. Sean and I are sort of used to it because we've been consuming Japanese media for longer than we can remember. Yes, yeah. And we probably were introduced to the Pafu Pafu stuff earlier than we should have. Yeah, before like we understood what Puff Puff meant, yeah. we, we were inducted or, into the Puff Or Puff. why Master Roshi would even want that. Yes, or why is the blood shooting out of everybody's nose all the fucking time of the show. Yes. This is weird. So, some of that is I think we're just used to it, we have a tolerance for it, there are different cultural standards, and it's tough to have those conversations, but maybe we'll have a little bit of that here. But, yeah, obviously, Silvando presents some problems, and I think Jade probably presents more problems. Yeah, because, well, yeah, with the Jade Martina side of things, it's not, because most of the time it's fine, because her character is, like, she's one of my favorite party members. That's maybe one of the reasons why I was so disappointed that her story goes absolutely nowhere after the first part, because she's so cool in that first part, and she's so interesting in her relationship with the Yusha is so compelling. Well, and I call and her just kind of goes nowhere. I know, and I call her a wuxia heroine, and what I mean is like a Chinese martial arts hero. She, that's literally what she is. Like yeah. we've talked this year about the King Hu films we discovered recently and really loved, like A Touch of Zen and Dragon Inn, and those have the wuxia heroine who's like a strong, stoic noblewoman who has had to like leave her noble home and go on a journey, and that's exactly what Jade is. Yeah. Yeah. Even the spear that is like a wuxia kind of weapon. Yeah, because it's not even just a spear; it's like a I forget what the word is. It's like a naginata in Japan where it's like a big curved top so it's like kind of more of a slashing weapon which is like probably like it's either that or nunchucks are the two coolest weapon types in anything like it's like you give someone a fucking naginata or you give them nunchucks I'm like I am all fucking on board with this lady and Jade is awesome she is obviously pretty heavily sexualized in her character design but that is not part of her character yeah until you get to this event in the second half of the game and I agree it's probably the weakest episode in the entire game the one where you re you get Jade back because she has been like possessed by a demon and she is obviously very hyper sexualized she's in a bunny suit all these different things and it does not then tie back into her character she does not she reclaims agency in so much as we get the mind wiping off of her but she does not then kind of go back to the role I think she once inhabited. And you're right, there is, while there are significant events in the story with like the king of Heliodor and all of this, who she is the daughter of, she doesn't like go take her place on the throne or anything. And she just, her character doesn't, she doesn't have any like event past that point. Like everybody else has something. Either it's like very directly related to the main plot, which is what I was saying earlier with the main character, Greg, and then the twins. They are all directly into the main plot boat for that whole second part. Camus has his whole thing with his sister. Um, Ro has his whole thing with the most Dragon Ball part of this game, which is when he is tra- training in the afterlife with his deceased master. It's and he's so learning good. How to do basically the fucking big bang attack. It's so good. It's it's yeah. That part is really fucking awesome. It's so awesome that like I think I wish it was longer because it's like it's so brief. Um, but yeah, everybody else. Has at least something. Yeah, Sylvia has the shit with his dad. That's the, the stuff that he has. Um, and then Martina has nothing. Like, like you, you meet the King of Delcadar again, or Helidor, or whatever. You, you meet that character again, and then eventually she reunites reunites with him. But there's no story material around it, um, and that's what makes it like especially more disappointing that the that her only other major story event in the game past the introductory phase is one where it's like. 
basically a metaphor for sexual assault and that she is captured by this guy she's forced to be heavily sexualized she's basically mind wiped or whatever and she dresses up in the bunny suit and in any other context in dragon quest i'm basically fine with the dumb playboy bunny suit thing because it's such a toriyama again it's straight dragon ball it's bulma it's like all that stuff it's probably problematic and bad, but I'm fine with it because I find it weirdly funny and, and weirdly charming in that Toriyama well, way. Well, let's use Bulma as an example for a okay, second. Yeah. Because if you've only seen Dragon Ball Z, you actually probably don't know this. That's true, yeah. But if you've seen original Dragon Ball, Bulma is sexualized a lot more in that half of the series. And the thing is, if you're going to watch Japanese media, some or, or just like, I don't know, older media in America, or sometimes just media in general, because sometimes this happens... Everywhere, right? Yes. But this is a thing that definitely happens in anime sometimes. You have to hold some contradictions in your mind, which is that Bulma can be very unfairly sexualized early in Dragon Ball, and it probably is harmful, and and it's like people peeping on her naked and stuff, and things that we would say are really not okay, very rape culture-y kind of stuff we would see as today, right? Yeah. Bulma can also be one of the most memorable and, like, best-developed, like, female sidekicks in the history of anime. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, those two things... Have to be. They have to coexist. If one can't cancel out the other, because then you're saying all of the amazing work Toriyama did writing this character and keeping her, and all the other people writing the anime and like Dragon Ball Super now and keeping her relevant for as long as she's been kept relevant, even though she is not powerful, she's not a fighter, but she is eternally one of the most important Dragon Ball characters. You can't, you know, discredit the work Hiromi Tsuru does bringing that character to life vocally just because there's this thing there. But you also can't say, well, because there's all this amazing work, that kind of rapey stuff didn't matter. Right? Yeah. So you have to hold those contradictions. Now, the thing with Jade is that they don't live up to, I think, the other half of the bargain, which is fully fleshing out that character. For sure. And then it's, I think the other part of it is that it's so incongruous with her character itself because she is not a particularly sexual character. Like, she's, in fact, she's kind of the opposite. She's incredibly noble. And stoic, and, you know, she is, like, the martial artist character. Like, she's the one that goes, she's the one that kicks the most ass out of all of them. And she's not, like, this very passionate, sultry kind of character. She's not, she's not sexual of her own nature or of her own choices. But they force a bunch of weird sexual stuff onto her. And that, and there, there is, like, a big difference between that and Bulma, because Bulma is only particularly sexualized in the early Dragon Ball stuff, where there's, like, underage, like, problematic stuff there, like, differences between, like, age of consent and everything between America and Japan that we do not have the time to get into. But at least, like, her thing is that she is sexual herself, and she's, like, her whole thing is that she's trying to find a boyfriend, and she does proactively use you know, sexuality as a thing to seduce people or manipulate people. So she, as a character, is sexual. There are instances in early Dragon Ball, particularly, like, there's one part with Oolong that that does not excuse any of that. But at least there's, like, a narrative justification for, in a narrative, like, there's a concrete narrative sense of why this character is being sexualized. In Dragon Quest Eleven, there's none of that. And she just gets the, like, the, the iroke or the, like, seduction um, skill tree entirely because she has big boobs. And that's it. Yes. And that's and that's like that's that's where it's like I can't just ignore it and and it's something of where it I was fine with it when it started to build and I think it is that like her story of it just being that and then realizing once I got to that last phase of the game after the first end credit sequence that's like oh that's basically all we really get with Martina because she's even more you know secondary in that in the final stretch is that's that's they've wasted this whole character just on that dumb bit and that really put me off. 
I totally understand that. It didn't. I don't want to say it didn't bother me as much. I don't think it because like it, it hasn't stuck with me as much. Those parts did bother me. Part of it is just like, and this is the nature of a video game that's weird, is that Jade was in my party pretty much constantly. Like you can switch I mean, out. She was lot. in mine also. It was yeah. I, you, I did. It was my guy Jade and then the twins for right. as long as I could have them. Yeah, and that's pretty much how I used it too. And so I guess to me, it's like. When I think back on Jade, I think of the the cool woman just being in my party, being a badass, and those sorts of things. And some of the story stuff fades a little bit. Uh, and of course, this is so. This is what I mean by the weirdness of video games: is it's so experiential. You have so much time where there's not story stuff going on, and you're just with, you know, your characters in your party going around the world, and you create head cannons and stuff like that. So. Like I said, it fades a little bit. I'm not excusing it. I'm just right, saying yeah. maybe why it didn't stick with me as much. But it is a disappointment for me. Um, what else do you want to say? Like, like I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the final stretch. I have some thoughts. So I'll tell you really quick what kind of my reaction to it was and my okay. journey with it. Because, so the, the second half, the, so when you get to the first end credit sequence, when you go to the Demon King's castle and you fight Mordegan slash... Ulnoga. And that's like the final boss before the first credit sequence... I was disappointed when it ended there because I was like, there's one, there's so much left on the table, but it also just felt like, it felt like kind of unfulfilling because all these amazing things had happened. Like one of my favorite scenes in the whole game is near the end of the second half where you learn Veronica has not survived. It is done in just the most impactful way possible. I think it's a beautiful series of scenes. Serena so evolves as a character there, the way she cuts off her hair and she has to like learn to live with this other half of herself gone. And then Serena gets Veronica's powers, and she becomes kind of your most powerful party member. Oh, easily! easily. Like, if, especially if you have the skill points to dump into some of her stuff. That like Veronica gets this ability also, but where she can cast spell the same twice. spell twice. Yeah, yeah, like that's a fucking game changer. And it's a game changer that reflects story. So it's like yeah. really powerful. And I just felt like okay, you went and defeated Mordegon, and then it just kind of ends, and it felt like. Oh man, there's a lot that they didn't really leverage here to make you feel like the, the emotional weight of these things. And then I realized, oh, but there's a whole bunch of the game left to go. Let's go see. And then what it is, and this kind of exacerbated it for me for a little while, is there is this mysterious tower of time. Throughout the entire game, you've seen these little, like, uh, creatures that are like white silhouettes. Yeah, these little spirits. These little spirits going throughout the world. And you have, you, you see them, but you have, there's, they're never narratively contextualized until this point, And you realize they are the, in English, the Watchers of Time, and they are going back to the Tower of Time, and they're basically recording and keeping time. You get there, and there's this mysterious spirit there that tells you, you can go back in time to the moment when everything got fucked. If, but the Luminary is the only, the Yusha, is the only one that can go back, and he will have to abandon this timeline, and you guys will not be able to go with him, and he'll have to kind of restart from that point. And I was really worried about, like, what does that mean, though? Does that mean all of this didn't happen? It felt like it was not honoring all of this. It felt like a way just to bring back Veronica. And I was like, oh, but does that honor what happened here? And yet, when I started playing it and really diving into that second half, where you do go back in time, you go to the castle, and you have this big event with the king, and all the stuff going on in Heliodor, and you defeat Mordegon, but then new things arise with... 
basically the star that had fallen in its Urgic's lantern. In it's the... it's just like the hero's star. Okay, yeah. So the hero's star has fallen. Uh, that happens almost in the main game, in the second half, and then Mordegon stops it. And in the second half, you really learn what that's all about. And it's like, oh, this is the original Ma'o, the original Demon King. I actually forget what his convoluted name in English like, is. I only was able to remember it um, in Japanese because I looked it up again. Because it is the hardest fight. It's Nizu Zelufa. It's, it's just like the hardest fucking Japanese thing I've ever seen. It's like impossible to maintain. I do not remember what they called him in English, but it's very similar to that. It's very much like, you. it's hard to pronounce. Yeah, it's just like nonsense. Like, it sounds right. like an alien word. Exactly. So you have this this demon, and that is like the original one, and through this part of the story you go and you go up to the heavens where you see this entire society of the Watchers who are very, very, Tor- it's like Toriyama's heaven sort of thing, right? Yes. With yes, these very... Yeah. Do you mean like the the floating island? Yeah, the like floating the little like Majin Buu looking dudes. Yes, yeah, they're just called the people of God in Japanese, which I think is fucking <laughs> funny. awesome. I think they're called the Watchers in in English. Um, let's see, I'm trying to see if I can find this name because it's so it's Kalasmos. Oh, that's different. Okay, that's not what I thought. It's like calamity. It's Kalasmos. Yeah, that that has more like I can't think. It's like Ulnoga. There's like a whole name thing with that in like Uda, which is like means to like like behind or like kind of like. Like, it, it makes me think of the word betrayal, Udagiri. Um, and so there's, like, a clear... That's where I think, like, you can have, like, the Mordagon or whatever is a very, like, evil yeah. name. Like, that makes sense. Nisa Zelfa, I don't know what the logic in Japanese of why they named that character. No. So Kalasmos makes sense as an English version yeah. of that. It's still, like, an awkward... Yes. It's still awkward, that, like, right. SM sound. So anyway, and you, but you're going to fight Kalasmos, you go up and... And you had seen one Watcher or one Person of God earlier in the story, during the dark part of it, where you're trying to reforge the sword... And in in the second half, you see their entire society that had actually been destroyed without your knowledge in the other timeline. And that is such a beautiful part of the game and meeting them and just, it kind of refilled my heart with the game. And I like really got back into the story here. I really liked all the stuff where you're learning more of the lore about Loto slash Erdrich and his companions and all of the things that happened there. You learn that the spectral figure in the tower is... Erdrich's companion, the original Serenica, is her name in English. Yeah, Seneca. Seneca, um, and all of that. And it is this, as you say, this the echo of the elusive age, and it is both the age that you literally have fled from, but also these the age of like your forebearers as the the former Yusha. And I liked it, and I, I liked how it, it reconfigures the world one more time, and it kind of reuses the map, and it recontextualizes some things, and you get to see this like kind of third path where not everything went bad, but there is still this threat. You you had this chance to like fix this deeply broken world you saw, and it's tough because the whole time travel thing does inevitably lead to, as time travel narratives like this always do, the... Oh, but does that mean the 40 hours I spent here doing this, do those still count? To me, they do emotionally because I did all that stuff. I saw all that stuff. And I, you know, the, 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 the way they present the situation, it's like, as the Luminary, I kind of have the responsibility to do this and save all these people. Um, so I wound up finding it very satisfying. And I think the, the specific ending where you go back to the World Tree with Serena and Veronica and they do this kind of, what feels to me like they're saying goodbye to Dragon Quest. And I'm like, oh God, is this the last Dragon Quest game? Because that's very much what the ending feels like yeah. to me. Um, I really felt fulfilled by it. It's It was it, it got rocky there for me for a little bit because I wasn't sure what they were doing. But I did like it. Um, what about you? It's like I'm so of two minds about it. Um, because it is like... Because there's stuff about it that I really do love. And I love like... Um, I, I love the how it starts. I love the just the like... 
there's a very it reminded me of like um persona 4 the golden anime where like the first couple of episodes of that is like the new game plus version of yes. the persona 4 anime and that's kind of what this feels like of like it's this weird what if where you get teleported back in time to win homeros or whatever like the the other general of delkadar um, he comes and betrays you, and it's like, oh, oh God, I can't believe that this fucking dude betrayed me. How oh, is he's betrayed? Curse, oh, curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Yeah, it's it's like the most fucking just like you know obvious betrayal in in the history of anime and Dragon Quest. Um, but yeah, but so Homeros shows up and does all that shit, and you know you find out that um the king is actually Ulnoga, and all that happens, and you lose the original hero's sword. And everything just adds, that's the turning point when everything goes to shit. So you go back to that point in time, um, and you're like, oh, but actually now I'm like level 80, motherfucker, and I'm just, I can, I can fucking smoke you that part, so hard. That part is so cool. I love it. Yeah, and I, and then I love that, like, they, you know, they transition from that into, like you said, when you, that, I thought it was really smart that that doesn't just immediately turn into, oh, and then Ulnoga reveals himself and we have the fight right there and I just kill him. And instead, it's we all go back to Delkadar, and then he tries to steal the sword in your sleep. It's a little bit confusing because, like, it's so unclear how much the Yusha retains of the past and how much he doesn't. Especially because there's, like, I don't feel like the game is particularly equipped to try to play with a, like, difference in POV between the player and the main character because they're so unified. So there's a little bit of messiness in that regard. But other than that, I think the story there is really interesting. And then I, I do, like you, I like all the stuff with the people of God and finding out the backstory and, and all the shit with Roche and who's the, like, other guy. Because there's, like, there's basically some Roto of the distant past that you don't even really know about. There's Roche in, in, in Japanese and his band of buddies with Seneca and Ornos and Nelson, who's the other guy. His name is just Nelson. That's Which great. is the fucking best. It is not in English. I forget what it is, but it's not Nelson. Oh, uh, it's just Nelson. It took me so long to realize that that was, ju- that it was just Nelson because it's like Nerusen in Japanese. That's and you great. don't, since you never hear it said, I was just like, that's a really weird name. And then one time it just hit for me. It's like, oh, I'm in Nelson's Labyrinth. Wow, like, I'm going to go visit Nelson's Inn and then head over to Nelson's Labyrinth so I can go have a face-to-face chat with this Nelson guy. Um, but anyways, I like all that story stuff um, in, in covering the past there. But there, but it never quite gets away from, for me, like, the sense of everything that was lost by you jumping backwards in time and, like, everything that was abandoned of the the everything that they all learned and and how those characters all grew yeah in that the crisis of what happened after the the tree of life fell and there's like i don't feel like the game ever is like like ever is interested in trying to like bridge that gap or do anything interesting with that dissonance and i kept on waiting for it to really like do something about that of feeling like like, it's awesome. Like, obviously, I want Veronica to be alive. I'm not a monster. But at the same time, you've robbed Senya of so much of her personal growth by jumping backwards in time and changing this timeline. And, like, having this weird timeline where everything turns out perfectly and Camus' sister gets cured of her golden, you know, fever thing um, without there being a big boss fight. And, like, every it's like you go back through everything that happened the first time. You go back to the Homura village and everything that happened there with the dragon and the volcano and all that, instead of it being a tragedy, it's, like, perfect. And you go back and you do all of that stuff. 
And it's like, obviously the world is better for you having done it, but at the same time, it felt so wrong to me. I, and I agree. And the game I, never addresses that, and I feel like it was such my, a missed opportunity. My biggest complaint is I do wish... Because they, they do a little bit in so much as like, there are... It's optional, you have to go seek a lot of these out, but they do some kind of recreation of most of the characters, like character growth moments. Like, you can go back to that city by the sea and essentially do the same thing with Silvando where he makes up with his father. Yeah. It's a, it plays a little differently, but he gets the same kind of character moment. But to me, like, I agree. The best stretch of Dragon Quest Eleven, I think most people would agree, is probably the second half, the dark stuff, right? Yeah. And That's it like, is, it's like the most consistent stretch of... Like, before that, there are individual points that are, like, peak really high, like the mermaid story... But that dark section is where it's, like, consistently very good, with the one exception of that Martina bit. It's where, other than that, it's, like, so good for a long stretch. Because that's what you say. It's all these characters being pushed to the brink in this broken world and these amazing episodes where they have to find out something really deep and important about themselves. And maybe it is because my favorite game of all time is Persona 3, which has a similar thing where the characters lose their memory at a certain point. I really expected what would happen in, the sec- in that last stretch of Eleven of Dragon Quest Eleven, where you go back in time, is that there's a moment where your characters get leveled up to where they were before the time switch, right? Right, yeah. Uh, and I thought what was going to happen there is they were going to get their memories back. And that the Lum- I thought the Luminary remembered this stuff, and I thought they were going to be granted by the Watchers, or by the people of God, their memories from that other timeline. And no one else in the world would, but these eight people, because they were important enough, and they made this journey, and they did these things they would be the carriers of this other timeline. And they would carry that with them. And then to me it would have been perfect. It would have been like, that stuff happened, it mattered, they had those character revelations in that way, but now they're in kind of a different state. You know? Yeah. Which is kind of the Persona 3 thing. It's, I mean, they don't change time, but it's like at the end of the game, and now I'm spoiling a different game, but it's Persona We 3. spoil Persona 3 on accident must be like a dozen times yes. on this podcast without yes. putting a warning. Right. Where... All of that is wiped from them. They live several months where they have not learned the things they learned and internalized, right? But then on that last day, as the protagonist is dying, it all comes flooding back, and they are those people. I think you could have done that in Dragon Quest Eleven, And I'm kind of weirded out that they didn't. Yeah, it's it's a really strange... Because I, I just feel like there's a number of different routes they could have taken, and they just sort of took the most like easy video game route of... like Because it is stuff like, oh, they just get their levels... And we just get their their levels get up, and they unlock, like, their tree again, and you just, like, fill out their tree again, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and Greg is in your party. There's no reason for that. Like, they, they put a justification of, like, oh, Martina wants to travel with you, and so she's the princess, and so, of course, he would go with you. But it's actually, but it's like, he and I have no relationship fucking whatsoever. Like, he did... Like, the last time we saw each other, he was trying to kill me. And then now we're like, oh, I guess you're okay. Cool. Where, and that's it. Whereas in the Dark World story, you had to come to this, like, deep, wrenching lesson about each other where you see Henrik is this incredible hero who, like, in those six months when you were a fish, which is a weird moment in Dragon Quest Eleven, he was, like, doing everything to keep this world together. And he had actually saved the people of your town. And he was a deeply good person. And you connect with him because he's, you see he is deeply good, he sees you are deeply good, you need each other, and you become real friends. Yeah. And that was one, that is the biggest disconnect to me in the last act, is that this Henrik, I see him sitting by the fire, and I see the other Henrik, who was like my best buddy by the end of that game, but he's not him. Yeah. Right? And so I agree. It's an issue, it, it never quite resolves for me. 
I can't exactly say why I got past it. Maybe I just spent enough time. Because really what that last act exists for is for you to go do endgame content and yeah. some of the bonus grinding things. Hang out in Nelson's Labyrinth for a little bit. Yep. Uh, all of that and do all of those things. And I love all of that. And it's really fun to play. Because again, the more you push against this combat system, the better it gets. But yeah, I, I think the story could be better. But, you know, as I've, I've said often on this podcast, sometimes it's like, it could be better in this way, but I liked it for what it was. You know, it's it's yeah. an imperfect world. But it's the kind of thing of where I think, because it is like, it also just makes you think about, you know, it's it's stuff of like, the game is too afraid of taking something away from you. And it's, it's the stuff of like, even Martina keeps her devil mode thing, her ability she got because she, of like all that weird shit that happened in that second bit. And it's like, there's no... There's, like, at least there's some vague justification with, with the princess being here, so the knight from that kingdom is going to be here as her bodyguard. Even if there's no character relationship there anymore, at least there's, a like, a narrative justification for him being in your party again. There is no justification for why she gets devil mode back. Yeah. And I it's mean, that kind of stuff of, like, if the game was willing to take things away from you, it would maybe be a worse video game in a certain sense, because that in-game content would then be very different. But it would be such a more interesting story and a more interesting game to me if it was willing to say, no, fucker, you went back in time. Like, you changed this shit, and that is, like, matters and is something that, like, will stand. And is like, is, you know, and, and have that, that, making the choice to travel back in time should have more consequences on you, the player, and on the main character, and it has none. Yeah, I understand that, and... I think this kind of thing generally bothers me in video games less than you. Yeah, I agree. But I do understand it. And it's like, let's do a good example here. Um, and maybe we should say, before I do my example, we should say, maybe this is one area where the game's very staid JRPG roots are maybe a downside. Yeah. Is that this is the kind of, this is an old video game design kind of thing, right? Yeah, it's very never... traditional where you, yeah, you have the end game and it's like, we'll just give you everything and you can yeah. like go do all the challenges and everything. Yeah. Right. And we would probably agree, you and I, that... By and large, maybe 90% of the staid JRPG things in this game, I love them. I'm glad they're there, right? Yeah. But maybe this is the 10% that could and should be updated. Yeah. So as an example, Persona 5. We love Persona 5. I'm going to spoil a little bit of Persona 5. I feel more bad about spoiling Persona yeah. 5, but I'm going to It's been it. out for two years. It's been out for two years. So Akechi is the bad guy in that one, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Akechi is the, he's the light Yagami of that game. And he's yeah, the, he's the guy who joins your party that then betrays you. Yes. And that whole game, you are waiting for the for your last party member who will have the last set of Persona skills that all your other party members do not have. Because in every other Persona game, um, there are just the different elemental abilities. And once you have the full party, every party member has one of those elemental abilities, right? Yeah. And you're waiting for... What is it Akechi has? I think he has the light The um, light element, stuff. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, man, my Personas have light, but none of my party members do. Then you get Akechi, you do an entire dungeon with him, he has light powers, and you think... And you've been thinking this whole game, Akechi seems like a rotten apple. But now he's in my party, he's got this missing link. He's got a... I must have been wrong, right? You and I went through that same evolution. Yes, yeah. And then you kill him! He's not just evil, he doesn't just betray you, you fucking kill him. Yeah, And he is gone. He's dead. He never and, comes back, he's not resurrected, he's fucking dead. That's so, a dead teenager in that and game. So, and so what the Persona 5 developers chose to do there is to prioritize story over gameplay in this way... Not really, I, I would say they're in sync, but what they've done in the prioritization is to say, okay, by and large in Persona 5, you are not going to have a team member with light abilities. We're going to hold that back so that we can do this bait and switch sort of thing and keep you guessing about the character Akechi. That's the thing 
that Dragon Quest XI is not willing to do. Is that a good example? Yeah, because they, they kill Veronica... And then, and then they do like I think you know having then Samia get those abilities is very smart because it makes her very powerful, but it also like inherently changes the dynamic of the party because now like yeah. she has all these abilities, but she can only have one turn. So even though she's very powerful, she's having her in the party is still very different than having old her and Veronica in the party because then you have a turn that you can use both healing magic and destructive magic with those two characters. Yeah. Um, and so like in that second bit. In the, in the second part of the game, they do that thing of they take something away from you, and they they give enough of it back that it's not like crippling, but it is enough to like it changes like a narrative thing that occurs materially changes how you play the game, which is I think is incredibly effective. And like that whole stretch with Senya, like I don't you'd have to be a fucking monster not to have her in her your party. For the entire stretch past that point. Once yep. she cuts her hair, she's in your party 100% of the time, even if you don't need to cast spells in a fight or something. Like, she's never coming out of that party. Agreed. Um, like, because she's, she's very powerful, but also there's just, like, narratively, you'd have to have no heart to, to take that away. And I think it's why it's one of the most powerful stretches of the game, because it is a place where Dragon Quest Eleven perfectly aligns gameplay and story. Yeah, and but then the problem is once you get to that last bit, it feels like there's so many narrative consequences and complications that occur that the player feels like I felt very tremendously like conflicted not in like a bad way about the story choice but just like like complicated emotions when you make the choice to travel back in time knowing all the consequences that has from a story point of view and then at first in that first bit it does have gameplay consequences because you literally travel back in time to when like your party members are like level 32 and though you're using like this weird sword that I forgot I don't even remember what that sword was I had it so long ago and everyone has equipment from that period of the game and like that's really interesting and then the game eventually just says no that's we're good we'll just give you the shit and give you all the levels and we'll give you all the party members and go do all the in-game content but there's still all this other story material left and it would be one thing if there was just an extra in-game mode that was just extra bosses and and extra levels and you can get all the achievements in side quests and like you know give you that like this is you know a weird end game thing that that has basically no narrative justification but is only there for you to like push the limits of the game systems that would be one thing but they kind of try to you know have their cake and eat it too with that and it and it just ends up kind of like being self-defeating and it made the ending like i enjoyed the very very end part kind of like a bit but it wasn't like I was hoping it would be very impactful and I came away from the very ending being like oh that like some of that stuff was kind of cool and then kind of forgetting about it a little bit later and for me the the game is far more memorable if like when you at the point where you end with killing uh Ulnoga and then maybe like the very beginning of the time travel thing and that past that it's just like I don't even really remember what happened all right, so I think we disagree on this a little bit. I think we actually agree in some of the broad strokes, but maybe just how we experience yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's different. like the, the how much it affects our enjoyment is yeah. different. Awesome. Okay, so I'm going to say we, we go for another like maybe 20, 25 minutes because I have to get somewhere. But Fair enough. We've talked um, a lot about this game already. It's okay. Here's what I want to do, Sean. Okay. I have kept a list of the moments in this game that either made me fucking cry or just impacted me very deeply because this game has a lot of them. And I've been waiting to talk about them. And that's why I was impatient for you to finish the fucking game. Because I needed to talk to someone about them and no one else I know had played it. Okay. So, yes. let's go. Okay. I'm going roughly chronologically here, but we'll see. 
early on in the game, this is the moment where I knew I loved Dragon Quest Eleven. Is there is, is so so the game starts and you go on your journey to oh you're the luminary you're gonna go meet the king right yes fuck the king well, first you. you have to climb the rock of God which I know is not called that in, in English how do they not call it the rock of God it's damn the it. fucking rock of God it's so good that's so great it's just it's the cobblestone tour in English the no, rock of God. God this is this is something that annoys me in English localizations just for a second is when there are references to deities in Japanese things that they get rid of in English because they think like. We we have a very different conception of God in the West, so it would offend people. Fuck that. Just do it. But, you know, you go to, like, Judeo-Christian churches to save in Dragon Quest. And obviously there's yes. a huge cultural difference between Japan and England in regards to that stuff. Um, but still, it's there, and it's the fucking rock of God. God I know, it. it should be. That's true. Because uh, I love all the church stuff in these games. Yeah. I fucking love it. Anyway... But, so early on, so you climb the Rock of God, you go to the king, the king is like, actually I hate you, we're going to try to kill you, this is when you meet Eric slash Camus, all of that. You get away, and then you go back to your town. Yeah. This moment where, without cueing you in on what they're going to do, you arrive back in the town, it's playing some very solemn, but like, meditative kind of music, and you go around and you're like, something's weird here, like, people don't know me... There's like kids running around I don't recognize, and you realize you're back in time. This is your child self. It's the child version of the woman you eventually marry. What was her name in uh, there? Emma? Emma. It's not Emma. Why would they not? Why would they not keep Emma? I don't, I don't know. know. Anyway, um, whatever the case is, the the girl you love as a the kid. The girl you eventually like have you spend a wish that Nelson gives you on to yeah. marry her secretly, which is like a weird narrative construction of that. It's weird. It still made me very happy when they did the whole wedding thing. You could look at a picture on the wall of your wedding ceremony. But anyway, they're all as kids and this is where you meet your grandpa again who's just Grandpa Gohan from Dragon Ball. Yep. And the game plays it with such a light touch. It just happens. It's so gentle. It's so powerful. And, And the grandfather is basically saying goodbye to you from the past. It's amazing because there's no... There's none of the, like, force another modern game would do for that kind of moment of, like, you know, big soaring string music or something to, like, really... And I think it's also because it's silent. There's no dialogue, or there's no spoken dialogue. It's all written. You really just... It just reads, and it's so powerful. And then what they do is suddenly you're in the present, and that's how the game breaks it to you, that your village has been burned down, and all your friends and family have been killed or scattered. That is a fucking mic drop of an opening to a video game. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Um, lots of episodes in the first half. We already mentioned the one with the mermaid and the city on the coast and all that. There's just cut that out and it's like it's a, one of the best short games ever made yeah like that's part of the reason i think i'm a little bit more down on the game is that like that mermaid thing is that's my favorite bit of the whole game and i thought like hit such a like emotional crescendo that was so interesting and then nothing else quite hit that point for me again at least in terms of like the non-major yeah. character stuff okay um there's a lot of good ones through the first half but i'm going to focus now on some second half stuff um Everything after the calamity happens where the Yusha journeys back home and you find this base for humanity there and you find that your friends and family weren't killed because Henrik was a good guy and he saved them and this is where you become, it's the friends to ally or enemies to friends thing which is always the best story. Yep. It's, we talked about Creed 2 earlier. It's why you have that because Creed was Rocky's enemy and then he became his friend and you do this all over the place in anime for Akira Toriyama. That's Every friend of Goku's was an enemy at one point. Yes. Other than Bulma, and even then Bulma was kind of mean to him at first. Well, yeah, the first is she fucking shoots him in the That's very true. beginning. That's true. That's That's a, true. If, if somebody shoots you now as your enemy, I don't know what you're doing. That's very true. Uh, you should put that on a bumper sticker. All right. <laughs> so anyway, that whole thing, and I think, I, I actually recorded a video of this. I loved it so much. When you come back after clearing the castle of darkness, 
and you're like, and the the the, the village looks abandoned, and then they all come in doing this parade, and oh, like, yeah. and and there's dialogue for the lyrics on screen. I was like wiping away tears. I had to turn the game off and like go like take a walk. It was just like this stretch of the game was so fucking powerful. I don't know, it didn't hit me quite that hard, I but it's very it. good. I just I love this game. So goddamn. Um, all right, there's that. Um, here's one that. Well, when we talk about this, the finding Rab again in the purgatory state, yeah. and he's like, first you find him, he's that like shriveled monk, and then he's 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 doing this training, and then he just goes and eats like one meal, and he's fat again. Yeah, that is one of the most Toriyama storytelling touches, and I love mm-hmm. it. Um, but here's one that just blew me away, and this one is really to me also indicative of how Dragon Quest tells stories is the entire episode where you go back to the ruins of the castle, the luminary's home. And you encounter your father, the the king right. of that land, as like this spectral, tortured spirit who has not been allowed to move on to the next world. And you wind up getting moved back in time. And you see the final days of that kingdom, this big bit of lore in the world of Dragon Quest XI, as like this spirit. And you go through the castle, and you see your mother, and your father, and your baby self, and Jade as a little girl. And you talk to all of them, and you get a sense of the culture of this castle, and who the king of Heliodore was before he was possessed by Mordegon, and all these different things. And again, it is with the lightest of touches. It is not, let us do a great clip show of these powerful moments. It's, the story's out there, go find it. And you go talk to people, and you find it by putting it to yourself, putting it together for yourself. Um, amazing. And then when the whole calamity happens and you get kicked back into the present and you save your father's spirit and you meet him for this moment and then he goes up to heaven with your mother. I, it just blew, I love that. It blew me away. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of another moment when you first go to the ruins in the first half and you find out Rab is your grandfather mm-hmm. and you do the, the, the ritual to like release the parents' spirits into the air with like all the light. Yeah. Oh man. There's, there's just some great visual moments like that. So I love that. Uh, we already talked about the whole death of Veronica and the return to, in my game, the city of Arborea, because Arbor trees. Oh, yeah. Um, Ramada. The Holy Land of Ramada is what it's called. Interesting. Japanese. Yeah. So, uh, again, that could not have been done any more beautifully or powerfully. That entire funeral, the music, just everything, her cutting her hair. My God. There's that whole fucking bit where um, the first time you go to Ramada, you arrive yes. there when the, there's a married couple that have like they're happy they've had their first child and there's like this whole blessing ceremony that happens just like by coincidence right when you arrive and it was like oh my god this baby was born on the day the fucking yusha arrived in our town to like fulfill the great prophecy and then the second time you come around which is at this bit you're talking about you find out that that baby fucking died when the the tree fell the, Holy the, shit I, I wrote this here just the, the second half just the sense of loss that permeates the world is so omnipresent and powerful to yeah. me. Here's another from the Veronica bit and, and Arborea, that town, that here's the brilliance of the design of this game. And by design, I also mean just the world map as they've laid it out, is that when you go to Arborea for the first time, you can go down this path and there's this clearing where there's a tree and it's completely silent. There's no yeah. sound. And there's kind of no reason for that to be there in the first half. I think there's a kid who gives you a quest Yes. But but that kid could be anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And you're kind of wondering, well, what's this here for? Because most locations in Dragon Quest XI have a story beat. Eventually, it, it might take a really long time to get there, but every location is there for a reason. And the reason is 
30 hours later when you get back there, that's where you find out Veronica has died. Yeah. That's where you make her memorial. And you can go back there every time and just sit in silence and think about your dead friend. That is great game design. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, again, how the, the game uses its whole map in that dual way with the two. Uh, I, I also thought as a scene in the in the third part of the game... Going to that kingdom of the sky for the first time, the where the people of God live. Yep. It's so beautiful. And it's just, there's such magic. To, and I think this is what reignited my love in the game, is at this point, you've kind of seen every inch of the game's map multiple times. And this was a new place. And it is so wonderfully Toriyama-esque, because they are all living in Namekian huts. But they all look like, they basically look like the Namekians and the Majin Buu people fucked, and that's what they are. Oh, um, that's, and that's your new OC for Dragon Balls Universe 3. Yes, exactly. So, and it was just so cool to see that again and all the kind of lore around them. I loved all of those scenes. So that's a list of the ones that maybe hit me hardest. And I was kind of doing that off of my memory over the last couple of days, knowing that we were going to talk about this. Uh, there are probably more, but again, this game is 100 hours and we could talk about it for a very long time. Yes. Um, one area I want to just at least... We, we can't move on without mentioning, I don't know what it is called in English, but the Little Metal Academy. I love that it. raises Stekina Lady, the little, the wonderful little ladies, to collect the little metals, which are the dumb collectibles yep. in Dragon Quest games. They're scattered mysteriously all across the world. And there's so much weird lore behind the nature of the little metals and where they came from. And you're just going around and, and there's just... Like monsters that are attending this this academy that have like Japanese like actually they're more like kind of like French schoolgirl outfits on and it's there's not much story or anything that happens there it's just a dumb little location for a bunch of quests like side quests and you to get items by turning in your medals and there are some really good side quests there I love that entire area and it's nice that you reference that they look like French schoolgirls because this is the area of the map where the people are extremely French. And here's what the place is called in in uh, in, in the English version, Sean. Okay. I, I do not speak French. I want to be very clear about this. So I'm going to try this, but I don't know French. It's l'Académie de notre matra les médailles. It's like les médailles, like, like yeah. médailles. So I don't... Maitre, I guess, is like, yeah, matron or something. But uh, like, maybe. I think there's more like, like that might be like school, like school, matriculation. Yeah. I think oh, that's true. That. Maitre, yeah. Um, yeah, we are, we neither of us know French. No, yes. This is the right master, word it's, it's master in okay. French. So master of metals. The Notre Master of Metals. Um, that is awesome. It is a wonderful name. They are all very French there, and it makes me laugh very hard. I love it. And there's the, like, weird Yankee girl, in, like in Japanese you call her Yankee girl. Like, she's the weird, like, tough girl that's, like, standing, like, like squatted down by the yep. tree. She's great. That, that like you, just, you need to give her like a whip or something to give to one of the teachers. It's just like what the fuck are you doing here, yeah. strange girl? That's from like a nineteen eighties manga, like like from like great teacher in Isekai or something. Okay, so I translated this because it's presented all in French, but in English this would be the Academy of Our Master of the Metals. <laughs> that's good. It's, it's very good. I think that is a localization choice that is. I love it. Yeah. Chef's kiss. It was because very that, that is very evocative of like what they are doing in with Japanese in terms of that place because it that is place like is it's like the like it, it might as well be like Our Lady Maria's Academy yeah. of, of the Little Metal. Oh, I mean, and and the thing is, we could dedicate an entire other episode about this game, just about the places that you see and different yeah. NPCs and just what a wonderful world it is to the, go around. The monsters and oh yeah. my god, let's talk about that for a second. Like, because we've we've. We've touched on the combat system here. We've touched on it in other episodes. I don't know if there's a bunch to add, but Sean, 
There are no monsters like a Kira Toriyama monsters. I agree. And there and are a lot of them in this game. You're still getting new ones near the end of the game. Sometimes they're variations on older ones, but they're pretty significant variations usually. Yeah. And it is nuts to me how many there are, how fun it is to fight against them. It is just, it's goddamn delightful. And then you add on this incredibly deep JRPG combat system like... By the end of this game, I never wanted to stop playing. This is the rare JRPG where I probably enjoyed the combat more near the end than I did at any other point. Whereas in most JRPGs, I'm ready to be done with it at that point, right? Even ones I I love. Like, I love Persona 3. I'm ready to get up that fucking tower at the end, you know? Right. And uh, and see the ending. This is just in part because, you know, Personas are pretty cool. Atlas has some great monsters. You can't beat Jack Frost, but they're not Akira Toriyama monsters. It's definitely true. Yeah. So all of that, oh man, it's so great. The music by Koichi Sugiyama is so good. And yeah, I know so- I wish there was more of it because yeah. it gets it's 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 excessively repetitive at a certain point. Uh, and I get it. It it definitely is. I know some people complain about it being very uh midi. It's it's obviously all synthesized. Yeah. I like that. It's charming. I think Yeah, I don't have a problem with the midiness of it. Yeah. It's more just like the fact that there's kind of like two town themes in the game sort right. of um and there's the one field music that's yes. just like it's it's a bit much it's a bit much it's it's again i think there's just something about dragon quest and this is this is what you get when you have something that is this clearly auteur you know driven like there's such a voice to it where the voice if it resonates with you it's going to resonate very very hard and it just i think i think i have fallen in love like i i have bought the other dragon quest games and because then a million other super long video games came out. I have yeah. not had time to go back and play them. I would love to. I plan to. I've, I've played bits and pieces of certain games. But, like, this was this game was just... A, it was a revelation to me. It really was. I, I adore it to death. Um, for all the reasons I've said here and many more. Um, while also, like, I totally understand what you're saying, Sean, about some of the issues. Because they're there. And I think there's ways this game could be even better. But... You know, to me, it's like, I, I just, I love it for what it is so much. And I'm sure this is not the last time we're going to be talking about it on this podcast because. Yeah, there will yeah. be a game of the year discussion for sure. Yes, where it'll probably be at least on your list, if not as Oh, yeah, I would yeah. be. I think it is basically possible, not because, like, there might be 10 other games that I like more than Dragon Quest XI that came out this year. I don't know. I do not have time to play enough other video games okay. to push it off the list. That is 100% for certain. Yes. Uh,. Man, I love this game. Anything else to say about it, Sean? It's a damn good game. I, damn. I, I think it could have been better in the end. And, I, and it's like my, my major issue with it is mostly that, like, I think it misses something in the cumulative impact. That it's like the individual things can be so good. And that mermaid story is like an all-time classic fairy tale story for me. Yeah. Um, and And it is that just like, I think it misses a trick by not fully committing is kind of what it feels like because there is stuff in that last bit that is amazing and we don't have the time maybe this will be something we'll talk about more in the game of the year discussion but the actual ending ending of this game tells you that this whole game takes place inside a fairy tale book that exists at the beginning of dragon quest 3 i don't know if you understood that context i did okay okay yeah because it's that's it's I That's mean, fucking weird. I mean, I understood that it's it's showing the build up to. Isn't Dragon Quest three though the earliest point on the timeline? Yes, Dragon Quest three is where Roto exists because this does not take place in the same world as Dragon Quest one, two, three. Okay. Um. So the the implication by the ending of the game is that all the events of this story 
and like the whole thing of you meeting the fucking dragon of life at the end who tells you that you have many more adventures to go on and for now you will be known as the hero Roto um, which is the name of the legendary hero from Dragon Quest 1 and Dragon Quest 3 which takes place before Dragon Quest 1 and 2 your character about the midway point of the game gets like and it like has the name of Roto bestowed upon them okay um and so there's some weird thing there with like apparently this was a bedtime story read to the hero from Dragon Quest 3 okay i didn't get that part of it i got the connection to Dragon Quest 3 cuz i know like the layout of the series yeah but that's interesting i mean it does i do love that ending with the dragon and everything cuz it really does Maybe they're, maybe this is their plan. I don't know. It feels like the end of the series. Like, it feels like this is the moment where they're like, yeah. Because it's summing up. It's like, there will always be a hero. There will always be a demon. But, you know, we can, together we can tackle it. And then, like, the credits even go through. I, I think in Japanese they probably do the same thing where they show each game and footage yeah, from and it. Yeah, they go through, like, the music. Yeah. Region, it's yeah. a really cool ending. I feel like if you were someone who had played all the Dragon Quest games, that would be, like, an unbearably emotional ending for you. Yeah. You know? Like, just such a beautiful culmination. I got pretty pumped up when Dragon Quest 1 popped up because I was yeah. like, that's a fucking good game. Awesome. All right. Sean, to finish our podcast today. Yes. I put out a request on Twitter for any listener questions. We got two in the mailbag. Okay. So I'm going to do both of them because they're both really good questions. Uh, first off, this is from Anthony Taylor on Twitter, and he had two questions for us, so I guess we have three. They're both Batman related. Okay. How would you I rank... Batman. First off, how would you rank the Batman Arkham games? This one's easy. One, two, three. That's the order. One is worst. Two is best. Or middle. Three is best. Okay, yeah, I think mm, I think I maybe Arkham City over Arkham Knight. Really? Um, maybe okay. it's been such a long time since I, I played them. I replayed both Arkham Asylum and Arkham City last year, and they're good. I do think the writing takes a massive step up in Arkham. I agree, I, but it's like Arkham City had all those really awesome challenge maps. Oh, that I Arkham see. Arkham Knight mean. didn't have so it's like as a whole. I I think Arkham City was the most I've enjoyed any of those games. Okay. Arkham Knight is probably the best of the three, but Arkham City was was the one that I fell the most in love with. I see what you mean. As a main campaign, I think Arkham Knight is the best. I think each one is just better than the one before it. It's it's very much kind of like Born Trilogy to me, where the first one is like really good, groundbreaking in some ways, not the best game ever. Then the sequel is like, holy shit, they did an amazing job. The third game is not as big a leap, but I think it's, it's enough of a refinement that I'm like, this is the best one. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that would be our general thing. Arkham Origins is probably the worst one. But it's, probably, it's the worst one, but it's not as bad as it has its reputation no, to make it. I like Arkham Origins. If I had the time, I'd play it again. There are, uh, the, the, some of that game is kind of weird, but it's mostly pretty good. And he asks, would you guys ever do a retrospective on the Dark Knight movie trilogy? That seems like something we'll have to do. I, yeah, was like, okay. I, I hadn't thought of it, no. but we did well, the Spider-Man ones. We did the Spider-Man ones. We did Star Wars this year. You and I have been talking off the air about what is our next movie project, and frankly, we have not had time on the show yet to do it yeah. because there's just been too many other topics. But we're going to do another one at some point. Uh, I was also thinking Lord of the Rings. Uh, I would like to do you that trilogy. that one again? Yeah. yeah. So Dark Knight trilogy would be a great one because it's... The Dark Knight, the second one I know very well. I've seen it a million times. The other two, my, like, I love Batman Begins, I know, and The Dark Knight Rises I have a lot of problems with. It would be interesting to do them in context the way we did those other movies yeah. and think about them that yeah, way. Yeah, because I have not seen Dark Knight Rises since the theater. Like, it's not one I've ever gone. I think I've seen Batman Begins probably three times. I think I've yeah. seen Dark Knight three times, but I've never gone back to Dark Knight Rises. Okay, so we will keep it in mind that you guys want that because yes. that would be a good topic. Yeah, that, that is... That will I know that that will happen eventually. It feels like yes. I did, who knows when. Yeah, that'll happen eventually. All right, and finally, J M Baxter asks a really good question that we could devote a whole fucking show to, but let's do a quick answer here. 
What's the one game in your backlog you haven't gotten yet, but would really like to play? Oh, Jesus Christ. Um... Here's the thing. This one's easy for me because of our topic today. It's the Dragon Quest games. And that's, that's, point, yeah. that's not any one game, and I know that's a little bit of a cop-out. It's it's roughly Dragon Quest 1 through 9, you know, because I, I don't think I would be able to play 10 as an MMO that's Japanese only. Although I can actually get it on Switch. It's in the Japanese Switch store. Yeah. Um, but So I would love to play those. The one I'm actually probably most fascinated in from hearing about the stories is... Five, which is the one that tells basically the story of a man's life from birth to like when right. he has a family, or eight, which was the PS2 one that's really acclaimed. But I think for me now, having played Dragon Quest XI, it's probably that. I've, I've, I'm mostly caught up on Zelda. The last one I have is Skyward Sword. But other than that, I've played all the mainline Zelda games. Um, so yeah, those are the big ones for me. Yeah, like, I just have a bunch. Like, the, the, the most true, but also the most pithy answer for me is Hitman 2. Because uh, I'm still playing Red Dead Redemption 2, and Hitman 2's right fucking there, and it is brutal. Um, Dragon Quest is also true for me. I think um, the Yakuza games are a big one that, like, I want to get through those. And, you know, eventually Yakuza 3 through 5 are going to come out um, on PS4. But then also I want to, at some point, I really want to play Yakuza Ishin which is only on Japanese. They they maybe if these new re-releases are really are sell really well or really well received, there's a chance that they would localize Yakuza Ishin, um, which is the one that's like a side like what if story set in the Meiji era of Japan, which is the like the, basically the late 19th century when in that shift between the like era of the samurai and then Japan opening up its borders and having like all this Western influence come in, which is like one of the most interesting historical periods in human like yeah. of human history to me. So I really fucking want to play that. Um but it's obviously like a huge time commitment, here's a money commitment to actually get that in Japanese. Here's, here's my other answer. Persona one and two. Oh the, that's the two. I still yeah. have never done the the Persona one and twos. They're just so big. <laughs> Uh, especially like Persona Two is the one that I know is more important, but it's also two games. Yes, yeah, the, the twos are the like you, you don't need to play Persona One. Yeah, um, but it's on so the PlayStation it's... Classic, Sean. Yeah, I'm kidding. All right, so I think that does it for this week. We will be back next week, catching up on the last week and a half of news. If anything breaks, you will probably have finished Red Dead Redemption Two by then, or you'll definitely be through the main story, if not the end game. Yes, because so. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, I. I'm kind of barreling towards the end of that game because a lot of stuff has happened that has yeah. like maybe want to finish the game. Yeah. Um. So we will talk. I think next week's topic will probably be Red Dead 2 spoiler chat, finally. Yes. So we'll get to that, and then we'll see where it goes. The year is almost up. We have so much more we want to do before the end of the year. We are racing to get it all done. This has been a crazy year for the podcast, and we're yeah. heading into the last month, and I also have busy times personally coming up. Yeah, so do I. That um, I have a pit in my stomach when I think about them because I'm very scared existentially. You know, imposter yeah. syndrome when you mm-hmm. feel like I'm not supposed to be here. That's what I am in life. Yeah. I'm good at podcasting. I know that, but you don't get a PhD in podcasting. That's yeah. a fucking shirt I have. There's no PhD in podcasting. No, I'm kidding. All right. I'm rambling now. Sean, pithy response to kick us off for the week. We're also going to have to talk about two fucking episodes of Doctor Who next week, so look forward to that, Jonathan. God damn it.